0: Thank you for tuning in to the final radio lineup for November 15th, 2018. We have six programs today, all played in sequence. At 9 a.m., there was Predictable Revenue Radio by Altify, hosted by Pat Morrissey. The guest is Glenn Davis, Senior Vice President, Growth Execution and Client Engagement with United Healthcare. The topic is, why is 78% of sales reps' time spent on non-selling activities? Glenn tells us what it is, why it happens, and what to do about it. 10 30 we've got laura patterson with ready set grow this program is all about organic growth her guest this week is greg stock ceo of xenos greg stock is a serial entrepreneur At 11 o'clock, we've got Sales Enablement Radio, sponsored by the Brevet Group and hosted by Ralph Grimsey. His guest this week was John Gremhauer, Vice President of North American Sales at SmartDrive. The topic is what every sales leader wants from sales enablement. At 11.30, we've got Sales Pipeline Radio. The guest is John Hyland, the CMO of On24. The host, Matt Hines, interviews him, and the subject is how a minor in psychology led Joe Hyland to be a CMO. At 12 o'clock, there's the Asher Sales Sense program with the host, Kayla O'Connor. The program is sponsored by Asher Strategies. The guest this week is Judy Schramm at ProSource. The topic is, if you think LinkedIn doesn't matter for your business, here's why you're wrong. And finishing up the day on November 15th, we have a new program, Growth Outbound B2B by Discover.org. Hosted by Katie Bullard, their CMO. The guest is Justin Gray. The topic is, what the world's fastest companies do differently. Thank you for tuning in to the Funnel Radio channel for November 15th, 2018. Welcome to
1: Predictable Revenue Radio. Hosted by Patrick Morrissey, Chief Marketing Officer at Altify, the sales transformation company. At Predictable Revenue Radio, we believe the only way to unlock sustained growth is to deliver predictable revenue by delivering insights, thought, leadership, and best practices on how to improve sales velocity. So sit back, all that and more is coming your way as we turn it over to our
2: host, Patrick. Hey, Patrick. Welcome to Predictable Revenue Radio, where we get into discussions about what moves the needle and what drives revenue. And today I'm pleased to be welcomed by Glenn Davis, the Senior Vice President of Growth Execution and Client Engagement for Optum. Glenn, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. So, tell us a little
3: bit about you and tell us a little bit about Optum to set the context for the conversation we're about to have. Sure. So, um, let me back up a little bit and tell you about United Health Group, Optum is part of United Health Group. And United Health Group is a diversified health and well being company headquartered in the United States and Minneapolis. Uh, we're a leader in worldwide effort to help people live healthier lives and helping the healthcare system work better for everyone. We do that through core capabilities and clinical expertise advancing technology and data health information and we uniquely enable ourselves to meet the evolving needs of a changing healthcare environment optum we provide information and technology enabled health services our our sister company united health group is united healthcare that provides healthcare coverage and benefit services so that's optum um, i've been there 18 years and my role uh, for those 18 years has been I suppose a little bit diverse, but always growth-focused. I ran global sales teams in our pharmaceutical development and pharmaceutical services company for a number of years. And about 10 years ago, I got much more involved in the internal infrastructure and really building the infrastructure on how we go to market, how we enable sales excellence, how we really bring the best of Optum and, uh, to a certain extent, United Health Group to our customers and consumers and patients that we all serve in the healthcare world. Talk to me a little bit about something that seems to be a, a
2: point of concern for a lot of sales leaders when we talk to them, is that their sales teams aren't skilled enough, or in fact, you know, may not be doing a good job at all. What would you say about the state of
3: sales as a discipline, particularly in B2B today? I think that there are several factors that have driven maybe a decrement a little bit in terms of our selling ability. Uh, and the key factor, I think, is the advent of technology and its impact. On how we sell. If I think about my first job, probably a gazillion years ago, working in Skokie, Illinois for a company called the Pattis Group, I was a new salesperson basically coming right out of college and I worked for a guy named Jerry Wolf. Well, every Monday morning, I'd sit in Jerry Wolf's office and I'd have a conversation with him about where I was going that week, who I'd be calling on, and we would work through what I needed to accomplish. I didn't know it at the time, but Jerry was teaching me how to sell. And he was instilling in me years of his expertise on kind of how to engage with clients, understand their challenges, and then bring the solutions that we had to bear to help them solve their biggest problems. Mm -hmm. Every Friday, I'd meet with Jerry again and we'd discuss what did I accomplish that week and what was I planning to do the following week. And I had to have that discussion before my travel and get final approval for the next week. It was a different era. Now, technology has made it so that I don't have to sit right outside Jerry's office anymore. And that's a positive thing because we can get people more geographically located to their customers. People can have a, a more quality of life in terms of where and when they work. And it allows us to expand the workforce in terms of identifying the best possible resources for our enterprise, specifically as we talk about growth. There's a negative impact too. And I think people miss that sometimes because we don't have people sitting right outside our office doors. We're not able to engage as frequently. We're not able to coach and mentor and teach and grow up our salespeople. I think that's had had a deleterious or negative impact on the profession of selling. Uh, Years ago, if you were going to be an IBM salesperson, you went through weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of training and education in the product and the challenges you were solving. It went down even to the detail if they taught you how to pack your bag. Uh And now I think what happens, I think we've started to turn the corner on this and I think it's a good thing. But now in many circumstances, we bring new or newer salespeople into the world with very little training, kind of send them out maybe with a coach or a mentor or somebody trying to help them. It's a challenge, and I think it's a challenge we as an industry, we as a profession have to overcome. Absolutely. Well, in,
2: and in the world we all live in, data matters. And you've been doing your own field testing about the art of selling and really trying to have a better understanding of what good good look like. So talk a little bit about what your approach has been to do a little A-B testing, if you will, and what you've discovered.
3: Yeah, let me talk about two specific things here because I think it's important. I make it a point to meet with two potential partners every week. I do that for several reasons. Number one is I think about sales enablement and sales operations and those types of disciplines. I want to stay on top of where the world is going, where the world is heading. Not that I'm looking to willy-nilly kind of add to our stack and and the solutions that we provide to our internal consumers of enabling technology and enabling uh, training. But it's because I want to understand where selling is going. I also want to know if there's things out there that can help our salespeople in terms of in accomplishing their jobs and doing their mission more effectively. And an observation that I, I would make is that we we have lost kind of the art and the discipline of selling a bit. We're not profoundly good at questioning, as an example. One of the common themes that happens, I'll schedule a half an hour meeting with us, a, a rep or a VP of one of these companies that uh, I look at and say, well, it looks like it could be interesting. I want to find out about that. And many times their level of preparation leading up to that discussion is you can tell it's it's kind of very nascent or very light. Uh, I get a lot of uh, kind of questions. I saw something on LinkedIn that you posted very recently. I thought that was interesting. And then they'll dive in, in and start talking about, well, gee, what's your biggest problem? And I work in healthcare. I think our problems are fairly uh, public in nature. We're also obviously a very large company, Fortune 5. And so we are very public. People could dig in and do a little bit of research and find out about us. Now, I appreciate that that's a challenge. And one of the reasons I know it's a challenge because of the second piece of the research that I think we all have done in the industry and we've done specifically, about 22% of our sellers' times is invested in interacting with clients. That right. I means 78% of their time is spent doing something other than investing time with their clients and understanding their clients. And if you think about that from a pure operations or a pure labor arbitrage perspective, we've got what are, generally speaking, some of the higher paid resources in an organization and they are spending time doing things that are kind of not where we need their time and effort focused. We need their time and effort focused with uh, clients. We need their time and effort focused with understanding industry challenge, client-specific challenges, and how the solutions that any given company has to offer to change and impact possibly those challenges. So when I have these conversations, I try and help guide and coach person on the other end and help them get to know us a little bit so that we can have a meaningful conversation. And it's, you know, it's an end of maybe a hundred a year, these types of conversations that I have, maybe a little bit less. If my observations are any kind of indication of where the industry is or where our profession is, uh, then there's work to do. And there's very serious work to do around uh, how we're training up salespeople or if we're training up salespeople.
2: Well, absolutely. And you're hitting on two big points that I think anybody in sales leadership, much less sales enablement or sales productivity, or relationship excellence or whatever. It's called lots of different things across industries, which is how do I free up my seller's time? And then once the time is freed up, what does good look like? What is a productive meeting? Because what I hear you saying is, you're letting people through the filter to get to you to talk about the art of the possible. And when they arrive, they don't know very much, they don't show very much, and they don't bring much value.
3: Yeah, I think it's broadly true. Certainly, there are some uh, circumstances where there are great conversations. Uh, so it's not it's not 100 uniformly true, but it's broadly true. It is something we need to investigate. It's something we take very seriously. We're a mission based company, and so. The notion of our sales folks being excellent so that we can get the best of what we have to offer to help change healthcare is extremely important to us.
2: Well, then you mentioned something when you talked about the evolution of your role and your background that gets into sales excellence. What I'm curious about is, break down sales excellence in the real world. What's important when you think about sales excellence and what you're trying to drive and what you see good looks like both in your team and and in other teams and other people you work with?
3: Yeah, that's absolutely going to vary industry to industry and uh, team to team on a certain level. But the key thing here is to start with a, a curiosity. In other words, knowing and understanding what's it going to take for a given team to excel in terms of their ability to it starts kind of from a foundation of believing that our solutions or you know anyone's solutions are relevant to a marketplace which ours very much are but understanding what top performers do and why they do it and then seeing if that models across your whole team now in some types of transactions having deep client knowledge and deep client intimacy isn't as critical in larger scale larger dollar types of transactions let me ask you a question. So yeah.
2: when you talk about, you talk about the notion and the evolution of your role being around sales excellence and talk to me about what that looks like in your organization or with other, other teams that you work with, like what's at the core of sales excellence?
3: Yeah. it so I think that's going to vary a lot depending on, um, the type of organization you have, the type of solutions that you have, what, Maybe re- very relevant for a transactional salesperson wouldn't be nearly as relevant for somebody who's trying to sell uh, a, a broader solution with more impact or maybe more, more dollars, more complexity. I think the key to this whole conversation has to start with understanding what it takes to be successful, modeling, if you will, or, or following and understanding what your key and and top performers do in terms of their day-to-day tasks and activities, their day-to-day preparation, and then creating an environment where everyone, you know, if you think of kind of A, B, and C players in any given sales organization, the key is to move the middle. You know, the, the C players sometimes aren't going to ever kind of get to be B or A players. But your B players, if you can move half of those up to A players, now you're on to something. And so the key thing is to understand what it takes to be successful in the environment that you find yourself in. We're a very diverse company, so there's lots of answers to that question, even within the four walls of our company. Um, but then I think that this, and this is uniform, once you've decided what it takes for that person to be successful, then you've got to be really, really ruthless around guarding A person's time in terms of their ability to do those tasks. If I've got uh, 8 to 10 or 12 hours in any given day that a salesperson is working, if they're spending 75% of that time, 9 hours, 10 hours, on internally focused tasks, I don't care what you're selling quite frankly, you're not going to be successful in any given selling environment. So step one, identify what it takes given your specific Uh, business, your specific industry. And step two is, and everybody can do that. Everybody does that. Everybody Mm -hmm. knows that. Okay. What we don't do well, I don't think we do well. It shouldn't be so Kind of black and white in this. What I don't think we do well as a profession is then jealously guard the time of the people who are out in the field to do those tasks that we've decided are the most important. Uh, and that's just critical. And it, because it's hard, because the CFO wants some bit of information and the CIO wants a different part of a bit of information. Your head of a product and your head of marketing, they all want kind of different pieces of the information that our salespeople are gathering. And so there's a very key labor arbitrage question because those what your CFO wants, what your CIO wants, what your product people, your marketing people want, it's important information to drive the company. Is the salesperson really the best person to be doing lots and lots of data entry for you into your CRM system? Or would that be better accomplished through a different person? Right. Key questions. And everybody's got a little bit
2: different point of view on that, but it all comes back to the data. And it all comes back to trying to give everybody in the team an understanding of where are we at with the customer, whether that's in in context of an opportunity or maybe more broadly around an account plan. When you're thinking about evaluating opportunities and account plans, what
3: are you really looking for? This notion of client intimacy is just, I think, really, really critical. And there's really some simple ways to kind of. If you pay attention to what people say in the context of a client plan review or a test and improve session, where you're reviewing a deal uh, and trying to improve that deal, there's language hints that people give us to see if they're really intimate with the client. Um, many times, I'll ask questions over the course of my career. Uh, what are the key decision points that a client's going to make? And you'll have a salesmaker or someone say, "Well, I think it's X, Y, and Z." And that when it, the minute the word "think" kind of comes out of their mouth. My immediate my immediate reaction is to say, I wonder if there's really a level of client intimacy that is going to help us as an enterprise really solve that client's challenges. Because I think it's important to know what a salesperson thinks. I think it's even more important to know what the client believes. Mm-hmm. And uh, to drive that level of client intimacy, whether it's through a client planning session or client planning discipline or an opportunity pursuit, that level of intimacy is, is critical. And if you don't get to that, it's very, very difficult to get past that point. Other things we're always looking for in past client intimacy are how well do we know the organization? Sure. Do we know who's influencing others in the organization? Do we know um, how each person in a deal team stacks and prioritizes their decision criteria? Because it's going to be different, again, for a CIO or a CFO. They're going to prioritize things very, very differently in a decision-making. So that intimacy helps us understand how do uh, given stakeholders prioritize. Um, What is their decision-making process? And I think this is This is so interesting because uh, this was all the rage several years ago, what's the client's uh, decision-making process, and it's important to understand that, but I think a lot of times clients don't have decision-making processes, and I think what they're really looking for is something to help them guide them along the way and get to the right answer. Nobody wants to sell a client or renew for a client something that isn't going to solve their problem, but what's going to help that client get to the right answer so that everybody wins? Um, my boss likes to sell, you know, I can sell anybody something once, but I really have to know what I'm doing to sell them something a second time. And what he means by that is I've got to have a situation where I'm going into you know, going into a client and I'm giving them something that I absolutely positively believe, I believe that it's going to solve for their challenges and solve for their problems. It's so a level of dedication to, to customer success, quite frankly, that you don't find often. Past client intimacy, another thing that I talk about a lot is this concept of deal fluency. Right. And that's that's as important. You can't get to deal fluency unless you have some level of client intimacy. What are the dynamics in that deal? Yeah, well, what does that mean in real life? Because you talk to anybody who sold for more than 20 minutes
2: and you give them an open-ended question, like, you feel like you're pretty confident in deal fluency. And they translate that as, well, yeah, I know how to sell. I get deals done. But I I don't think that's what you're talking about here. No,
3: I'm really not. You know, sometimes if you know, we want to know if somebody's a coach in a given deal. And one of the test questions for that is, could I call them up and and have them take my call, or could I call them up and get a meeting with them? You know, and, and that way I know. That they're really invested in getting to the right solution so that's that's kind of how we define a coach and there are lots of test questions that we can ask kind of folks along the way what is their decision criteria who have you confirmed that with when can we expect to kind of have a decision made who are the key influencers of what looks like to be the buying persona in any given opportunity Um, are they negative or positive influencers so there's a series of questions that you can ask to determine if there's deal fluency I think one of the things I look for in your top salespeople, I can give them a a whiteboard and say, okay, draw out the political map for this given opportunity. Not the customer per se, but the given opportunity. They can go up to the whiteboard and they can draw out the political map, who influences whom, what the relationships are. They've got a real sense of what the dynamics of that deal are. Um, The next piece is, and I'll use kind of a specific language here, can you tell me what's in the insight map? What is uh, the goals, initiatives, pressures, obstacles that's driving that client decision? Many times uh, in these transactions that I have with some external sales folks, they never really get to those types of, uh, that type of insight with me. They never really ask those kinds of questions. I have to offer them up. And so that's when I'm talking about deal fluency, it's really those things. What's that political map going to look like? What's that insight map going to look like? Where is that deal uh, as it stands today and tomorrow? Well,
2: and it it sounds like based on what you were talking about earlier with regard to intimacy, there's also a a tell here whether what language is being used in the team and and does it look like, does it sound like the client?
3: Does it look like and sound like the client? So, you know, this is an interesting dynamic. Over the course of years, I have noted nobody really wants to lie to you. You know, nobody in, in in a deal review, especially if... You're coming from a place of wanting to support a client team or a salesperson. Nobody wants to lie to you. And so they'll shape language. If they don't know an answer, a lot of times they'll shape language. When oftentimes the right answer is, I don't know yet. Right. But they'll shape language and they'll use that think word, well, I think, because they don't want to lie to you. They don't want to be deceptive. People aren't naturally deceptive. Most folks aren't anyway. So they'll shape that language in a way that gives you that verbal hint And it's more than just words. Sometimes it's a tentative approach to something. Mm. Um, They'll talk around things. And and then, you know, I think the approach to that has to be, I think in the old days, that was kind of, you know, somebody get queued up. Beatings will continue until performance improves. Sure. And I think where we've come to and hopefully we've come to and evolved to in our profession at this point is. That's a cue for me to take that salesperson or manager side and say, hey, what can we do to support this person in getting greater intimacy and fluency in terms of the client and that opportunity? Well, and when you do
2: that, then you really get to what I've heard you refer to as is professional selling. Yeah. Right? And there's an investment, but the... On both sides of the equation, that as a seller, I've got to have belief that my manager, my team are investing in me. They're giving me tools, technology, information, insight, all the other things that are going to help me be world class.
3: Yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. A friend of mine talks about athletes and environment, and you got to have the right athletes. Not everybody is cut out to be a salesperson, and there are lots of different types of personality types. That can be salespeople, but not everybody wants to be or can be a salesperson. The other thing is environment. And have you created a professional environment where expectations are clear, where discipline is clear, uh, where metrics leading and lagging are clear, where compensation is clear? And then we've enabled those people. To not only have the right tools to get their job done, but have the sufficient time and training to accomplish the tasks that we've decided will help them get their job done. Um, I think the other thing is this notion of coaching and mentoring, which has gotten a lot of uh, playback in, in our circles over the last several years. But if you're going to have a professional sales force and a professional selling environment, you've got to have folks that are professional managers and, and leaders who really know how to coach a person along. You know, it's not that long ago. I was, I think, it, I can't remember exactly the environment I was in. I may have been out on the road having, a, having dinner in a, in a hotel or something like this, but I ended up talking to the chap next to me who was a sales manager and, and, you know, just a couple guys on the road talking about selling. And sure. I asked him, you know, what is one-on-ones like, the salespeople? You know, he mentioned to me that it was a, a lot of kind of how are things going? Where are their challenges? And I said, well, do you ever talk about deals? He said, well, not unless they bring it up. And I thought to myself, wow, that is not an evolution. That is a devolution of yes. progress in terms of selling. So uh, you must have uh, professional managers who are willing to kind of ask questions. And again, coming from the place of let's make this better. Intent counts more than technique. Coming from a place of let's make this better, where you've got managers who will have those conversations. How's this deal going? And knowing if they're kind of getting sold a little bit of a bill of goods and then reshaping that salesperson's perspective on that deal and helping them advance that deal. Well, and you touched on something that I think is probably a good place to wrap this conversation. When you think about
2: your career and what's made you successful in, in selling, you know, who's the best person you've ever worked with and or worked for? And what, what's the key takeaway you give
3: that, you know, you helped internalize to make, drive your sales success? Yeah, I'm actually going to give you two. Because I think we all have kind of evolved in different ways and, you know, the road is not straight. Uh, I mentioned Jerry Wolf a bit ago. At the very foundation and early part of my career, he instilled me uh, the discipline required and kind of the daily disciplines and weekly disciplines and monthly disciplines and annual disciplines around how to be a professional salesperson in terms of planning and focus that you can't sell everything to everyone. You need to focus on where you can really do the most good. And uh, the discipline around planning and, uh, you know, kept up with Jerry up until just a few years ago, but a phenomenal sales professional. And then Eric Murphy, who is just uh, an absolute pros pro. And he brings an energy and a passion to the, the profession of selling and great, great insights and great care and concern around the people that work with and for him in terms of their development and their health. Those two guys specifically in terms of my professional development have just been incredible influences on me.
2: Fantastic. Well, Glenn, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise. You touched on a number of things from professionalism and selling to deal fluency and intimacy that we could have a long conversation, but I've got to let you get back in front of customers. So thanks so much for your time and have a great day. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Predictable Revenue Radio with your host, Patrick Horace, Chief Marketing Officer at Altify, a sales transformation company. One of the many shows here on the ever-growing Funnel Radio Channel. For At work listeners like you, Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another episode of SLMA Radio. With this week's episode, Ready, Set, Grow. Where host Laura Patterson interviews C-level executives from across various industries to discuss how they've organically grown their companies. These tell-all programs focus on revealing the tools and management techniques these guests are used to fuel their above average growth with the one woman who seems to know how to pull all this information out of her with her above average uh, technique <laughs> it's Laura Patterson hey Laura
4: hey Paul thank you very much really glad to be here welcome everybody we appreciate you joining us today on ready set row As Paul mentioned, members of the C-suite share their insights on what it takes to successfully achieve organic growth, the lessons learned, the role they believe marketing needs to play in growth, and how they measure marketing's contribution beyond this quarter's revenue. We hope you've taken away some useful and valuable nuggets from our previous guests. We are grateful to Ziggy Shanklin from White Cloud Security, JT McCormick of Scribe Media, Dave Secor of Alter, Kevin Jones from Anovia, Mark Hafner with Revionics, and Becky Taylor from SensorRx for being with us on these episodes. I'm confident you will find our next guest's thoughts just as inspiring. Please join me in welcoming a longtime associate, Greg Stock, CEO of Zenos, which helps the world's largest organizations ensure their IT services, applications are always on. From the U.S. Air Force to HBO, Xenos keeps IT systems working and companies delivering on their mission, like broadcasting Game of Thrones on t- time each week. Let me tell you a little bit about Greg. Greg is a four-time software CEO well-known, especially here in Austin, for developing award-winning software applications, transforming organizational cultures, and successfully guiding companies through venture funding, M&A, and IPO. Greg has an amazing track record. It spans more than 20 years of executive leadership, and he's had high-growth companies, including Vovici, which is acquired by Verant, Mirage Networks, acquired by Trustwave, Vestera, which went IPO, and Manugistics, which also went IPO. Let's talk about Zenos, because it's been an exciting ride for the last four years. He's led Zenos to double-digit growth for four consecutive years, and he's helped the company claim its spot, on the prestigious 2017 Austin Business Journal's Best Places to Work and 2016 Forbes' Best Places to Work. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today.
5: Thanks, Laura. Great to be here.
4: So let's jump into it and talk about one of our favorite subjects, organic growth. Okay. So you've been a CEO here at Zenos, but not only at Zenos. You have a lot of wealth and rich experience to draw on. Where do you think organic growth belongs on the CEO's priority list and where is it for you?
5: Yeah, I mean, when I think about my main job as the CEO, uh, it's to first and foremost maximize shareholder value. And then I also think about ensuring customer success and, and ensuring employee success. And the thing that underlies all three of those things is organic growth. I can't really help employees reach their goals unless we're growing. We can't help our customers achieve their goals in terms of uh, having innovative products without organic growth. And and certainly, first and foremost, if I'm going to maximize shareholder value, growth is the ultimate metric, and organic growth specifically.
4: I concur with you, and I I think it's pretty interesting. You know, we've been talking about growth here Uh, In Austin, many of the CEOs here for quite a while now, it's you know pretty much a a key part of our DNA becoming a much bigger part of the conversation if you're reading any of the publications out there about the importance of organic growth, the need for CEOs to focus on organic growth, the mandate by uh, the boards that CEOs uh, focus on organic growth. So clearly everyone knows it's important. So what do you believe are the biggest challenges that companies face when they try to achieve organic growth?
5: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a balance and that's the hardest part. It's it's easy to say, well, you have to have the demand. So you can say, is marketing building the demand for our products? And then two, uh, coupled with that is, do we have the right organizational structure in place, the right go to market to support that demand? But the key to it is when to invest in those two things to to really maximize um, growth and profitability, right? If you invest too early in one and not the other, you're going to fail. And so, uh, my job is to look at the balance of those two things and, and make sure we're maximizing them.
4: It's also kind of a timing, right? It's kind of a combination. Yep. Timing is everything. I think I remember you saying that once many years ago. <laughs> you did talk a little bit about culture. Congratulations again on all the wonderful things you've been able to accomplish with Xenos and the culture here. So what kind of organizational culture and how do you build those organizational cultural at- attributes uh, that you think are the, sort of the dna behind any company that wants to grow organically
5: yeah there's a couple of things i look for in companies when i um when i assess them and 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 determine whether or not i think they can really be winners especially with respect to organic growth it's one is do i see a, a desire to win a team championship do the people that are working for that company feel this urgency around winning together as a team and then two how quickly can they evolve you know how what's the speed of change that the company can handle so th- those are kind of two things i look for not necessarily the things that I implement. But I would say that's what I'm looking for, is you know, are this group of people, are they excited about, do they want to win together, and can they change rapidly?
4: We're, we're gonna send a really interesting mm-hmm. message to all the listeners out there, because it seems like half the time we have these conversations with the Austin CEOs, we always come down to some kind of a sports metaphor. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, Mark, I know, that's true. Mark, Mark Adner with a game review, <laughs> and yeah. you with the team championship. <laughs> so, But anyway, it's all- well, it's better
5: than war <laughs> analogies. <so. laughs>
4: Absolutely. But we just need to let our listeners know that being here in UT country, it's very common to have sports metaphors. So when you, uh, I, I love those two ideas about you know speed of speed of change. I think that's excellent. And then you know the desire to win. Are you hungry to win? So what do you think then? Are the three characteristics, if you were to peel that onion down just a little bit further, what would those three characteristics look like to you?
5: Yeah, I would say, let's assume first that strong core values are in place, because you could easily say that's one of them. But I'm going to say that's probably obvious to a lot of the listeners. So let's just say, you know, you have a strong set of core values, then there would be three things that I would probably look for and try to implement. And that is a culture of people that are willing to take risks. And learn from their mistakes. It's okay here for people to make mistakes. Just don't make them twice, right? It's, Mm -hmm. um, but we want people taking risks. And so when I see that in a culture, I know, oh, this team can do something incredibly great. Um, I think I look for and try to implement uh, and bring in people that are passionate. And that passion has to manifest itself in relentless effort and work ethic. It's one thing to be passionate about something. You know, you mentioned sports. You could love tennis, but you might just like watching it You or, or playing it once a week. But do you actually get up and train for it? Do you enjoy the training? And so, you know, I look for people that have passion and are willing to turn that into relentless effort. And then the last one is really, and people at Zenos would probably echo that they know this about me, is that it's kind of positivity underlies everything. It's that every day you wake up and you know you're confident that you can make something great happen that you always no matter what challenge you face you know you're positively going to affect that
4: change i like this uh, i like those three characteristics i particularly like the relentless effort i think that's an important message to send out there some you know it's particularly in kind of the current work environment yeah yeah so thank uh, you <laughs> good message to send so you mentioned a few minutes ago talking about the balancing act and that marketing has to, you know, drive the demand. That's kind of their job. So in addition to thinking about or adding on to that, the role you believe marketing plays in driving organic growth, and you have a tremendous CMO here in Megan. And I know there are many other people on the team besides Megan that make that happen. But what do you see as the overall role of marketing and organic growth?
5: Well, you know, it's, it's the cornerstone to it. You know, when I think about as people want to learn about Xenos if they are proactive marketing is responsible for providing that window the presentation of the company you know in terms of a website um, and collateral materials more than that marketing is the megaphone for spreading the word to those people that aren't coming to look for us so to make sure everyone knows about us i think about the fuel for the engine you know for organic growth and providing leads and the metrics that help find out if those leads have a high quality and will close in the pipeline and then finally the one that's probably I would say maybe most underestimated is the role of cheerleader to bring not only the, the, the employees to bear in the role of marketing, because every one of us can be a marketer, but also the cheerleader for the customers to bring them to bear to help spread the message about Xenos
4: in this case. That's really good. And, you know, in the conversation I've had with Dave Sikora, I know you know Dave, you know, he always talks a lot about the importance of the upstream how that relates to the downstream and some of the things that you're describing here tend to be more in the downstream what right. about the upstream part of marketing
5: give me an example
4: all strategic marketing you know understanding new markets dependent kind of go up to pursue looking at a new roadmap opportunities for products, those would all kind of fall more into the upstream potentially.
5: I think you're right on. I mean, it's it's absolutely critical. And that gets back to the speed of evolution is when we find, let's say, a new market and marketing is responsible for looking and we we consider product management part of that component, but it's looking for a new market or a vertical. And what key value proposition do we deliver to that special group? And can marketing evolve materials and the website to capitalize on that? So, no, you're right. The upstream is is a critical component as well. And as you mentioned, we have a great leader here that's good at finding those opportunities.
4: Yes. I just want to overlook that. Yeah. That is something that you guys have invested in. And oftentimes people, when they do think about marketing, they go quickly into
0: the tactical. The, yeah, yeah. Into the
4: tactical. Right. And so it's easy to think that what you're suggesting is tactical but really I know you and you are talking about it from a strategic point of view and it gets manifested right tactically yeah yeah
5: i mean it, it, xenos has evolved speaking of speed of evolution we've evolved so much from you know its roots were early as an open source software company then it found its its strength up at the enterprise level we continue to look for and you know the, the mm-hmm. marketing team continues to look for
4: opportunities upstream i think that's an important part of your story so i'm glad you mentioned that so if you have a lot of exposure to other companies not only the ones that you've ran and, and built but you have close ties to other companies here in Austin. I know you are familiar with many other companies. You work with a lot of customers directly. I know that you're very hands-on with customers, and you have a core value around customer success Mm -hmm. as a culture. So when you think about marketing, not just inside Zenos, but outside of Zenos, how well do you think marketing as a function is playing its role in organic growth in the industry, particularly B2B?
5: Right. I mean, I think it does a decent job, but I always do think it's undervalued and underestimated in, in what it can do. That's been one of the things that I talk about in my career is developing signature moves. It's, and what that speaks to is as young people are kind of building their careers and thinking about what can they do to make a difference and progress in their careers, very early on if you start thinking about every job I ever have if I develop a signature move something that I can kind of put my own name on a twist in the way we do um, something special that'll be identified with you you know as you progress through your career that it really helps and uh, later in your career you'll have this list of signature moves and and one of them for me has been marketing and putting metrics around marketing and I love doing that so when I have looked at the other companies in Austin you know I often gauge how well they're doing by are they letting marketing lead the company some of those things i mentioned were good but maybe as cheerleader letting them be the cheerleader to enroll employees and customers i would say in general marketing is probably not doing as well as it could do
4: I would agree with you. In fact, Spencer Stewart would agree with you too, because they just released, I and mean, you probably hadn't had a chance to see this, uh, their latest study, which said that 2018 has been the year of the CMO shuffle. <laughs> 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 Lots of CMOs have lost their chairs this uh, this year, and uh, it has a lot to do with not stepping up to the plate on the metrics and and, and growth. Right. And I believe we need to take a small break, but we will return shortly and pick up the conversation on marketing. Management. Excellent.
1: Well, for those of you that don't want to be part of the CMO Shuffle, there are some answers, and one of them maybe is Vision Edge Marketing. They work with chief executive financial marketing growth strategy and customer insight officers like you. In a variety of fields, manufacturing, technology, financial services, medical device life sciences, and transportation logistics. All those and more, anyone that's facing growth or performance challenges. Customers rely on VEM's expertise to make more effective and faster fact-based decisions. This isn't how they feel, this is based on the facts regarding customers, markets, products, and the competition. They also help you improve and prove the value of marketing something we're always debating and leverage data analytics processes and measurement to increase marketing's relevance and ability to deliver greater business impact after all that's what it's all about the bottom line what did it do and how did it do for more simply go to the website vision edge marketing just like it sounds marketing.com and see how you can avoid the cmo shuffle <laughs> Wow, the CMO shuffle. I don't want to be part of that. So I'm going to I'm gonna tune in extra hard here for the next half here.
4: So um, thanks, Paul. So we're, we're back with Greg Stock. We're really delighted to have Greg with us. And we were on the topic of marketing and the role marketing plays in driving organic growth and uh, the passion that both Greg and I share for marketing measurement and accountability. So, Greg, let's just kind of picking up on that theme. You were talking about marketing is sometimes undervalued and could do better. If you could give a piece of advice to all the CMOs and VPs of marketing listening uh, today, uh, and hopefully in the future, what would be two pieces of or two pieces of advice or recommendations you think they could they should listen to that would help them do a better job?
5: Okay. I would say two that are maybe sound somewhat obvious, and then I'll give two that aren't obvious, maybe not. One is engaging customers. You know, I think that's that's one of the signature moves, bringing all the customers together and holding a user conference. And so engaging customers is one that I think might be obvious to listeners, maybe not. Um, partnering with sales is certainly an obvious one, right? The ones that maybe are less obvious are back to the engaging the employees and making sure every employee understands their value as a marketer for the company, and then the speed to reinvent. And back to your upstream comment, you know, how quickly, if we find something that works, how quickly can we turn the company's attention and resources on what works uh, to capitalize on it?
4: I think that's awesome. Those are great suggestions. And, uh, you know, in my career in marketing, I would say that those are are four really important uh, aspects of my experience as well. So I think those are really great recommendations. Let's go into a little bit, but we don't have a lot of time, but some, a little bit of depth around measurement. You know, you are into metrics. I am into metrics. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about how you recommend marketing measure its value contribution and impact to the business, uh, particularly around growth.
5: Well, we're very team oriented. So what we like to think about is the ultimate metric for everyone is really growth and, and sales. And certainly we measure marketing on the ability to convert so more granularly, I mean, I guess we would look at things like CAC and Keck and the magic number. So how much are we investing in sales and marketing together and how does that produce? And so the the magic number, if you're familiar with that, we certainly use that here, but more below that, CAC and keck are the customer acquisition cost and the customer happy uh, with our progress at Xenos. I like motion in metrics. So it's very important for me, you know, it's not just to tell me that our, our pipeline is this big, it's to tell me How quickly is the pipeline, the quality and size changing per quarter, per month, per week. And I like to see that motion because that really tells me it's a leading indicator of something that's working or not working and tells us where to how to evolve quickly.
4: Speed, motion, those are things that are really important and I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I think some others that I, I know have been important to you in the past, not to put words in your mouth, yeah. but things that you and I have talked about and particularly tied to some of the things that you've mentioned, like customer referral rate. Right. right. I know that's important to you because you it's all about, you know, how do you keep those customers for life? Greg was mentioning that in addition to some of the things around quality and size of the pipeline changing and the ability to convert, we're talking about customer referral rate as an example of a metric tied to something that's very important to the culture here at Zenos around keeping customers for life. And Greg, you were saying something about the user conference.
5: Just mentioning that the user conference was the probably a critical moment for the company when it leveraged that first core value for us and helped everyone in the company to understand the value of the customer and how they could be leveraged to help organic growth through marketing.
4: I'm also thinking that another metric I know in the past I've heard you talk a little bit about is the adoption rate of particularly of new products and new offers. Is that something you still consider important for marketers?
5: I mean, we really only have one product here. here. Yeah. But, so, it,
4: But it, here at Xenos, but at other places.
5: Yeah. Yeah. And it gets back to organic speed. growth, right? And, and speed. And yeah, we haven't changed anything on that. We still think that's a, a critical metric for the company.
4: Okay, great. I mean, I remember other places where that seemed like that was yep. pretty important. Before we close, you've had an amazing road serving as a CEO. And as uh, I noted earlier, you're in your fourth your fourth uh, iteration of being a CEO. So tell us a little bit about your path. And as you think about it, some lessons learned, insights you'd like to share with our listeners.
5: You know, I think about all the things I did, and, and like I did almost every job, you know, I was in, I was a software developer, I was an SE, a salesperson, a marketer, and I think they just really ran out of jobs.
4: We are in our final thoughts, and uh, Greg was sharing with us his road to being a CEO, and he was being very glib when he said they ran out of uh, positions, and that's how he ended up as a CEO. That's not true. and But I do think the key message there was he, uh, you know, anyone who's a Star Trek fan, uh, uh, Captain Kirk always was always telling people, you need to know how every part of the ship works, right? right. And you are a big believer in as that, you know, and understanding how every part of the ship works. You I have do done believe all... that.
5: I think you have to be credible um, when you're a CEO to understand what all of the people that are working for you and with you are dealing with. And if you don't have the vocabulary, and so I, I do believe that that's really helped me.
4: And you were kind of segueing that into some lessons learned and, and thoughts or, or insights or you know, wisdom that you might want to share yeah. with aspiring CEOs?
5: I mentioned the developing signature moves and, and amassing this list of signature moves. So people will desire you more to do these things that you're so good at. I always went to solve the hardest problem. I tell my kids, take the hardest job in the company. Always ask, where do you need the most help? And that's what I always did. And then, you know, I mentioned bringing others through mentoring, whether it's teaching at Penn State or just taking the time to pretty much meet with anyone who wants Um, Some advice. I love doing that, and I think it's a big part of building the future of Austin.
4: I I agree with you. I I, I think I mentioned you, I took that board position at UT's Masters in Marketing Science for that very reason. That's awesome. To our point earlier, we need more folks who can, in marketing, who really have a uh, passion for data.
5: Yeah, we sure do. And
4: translating that into wisdom. Well, Greg, thank you very much. We appreciate you being with us today. We will turn it back to our SLMA folks.
1: you've been listening to another episode of the SLMA Radio with Ready, Set, Grow. Right here for at work listeners like you. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Sales Enablement Radio, a show about content, tools, and leadership that makes sales enablement the fastest growth strategy today to help salespeople like yours sell more effectively and efficiently. With your host from the Brevet Group, it's Ralph Grimsey. Hey, Ralph.
6: Welcome to Sales Enablement Radio. Thank you, Paul. Paul Roberts is our announcer of Sales Enablement Radio. I'm Ralph Grimsey, your host today. I'm a partner here at the Brevet Group, the program sponsor. At Sales Enablement Radio, we talk to CEOs, authors, chief sales officers, and sales leaders about sales enablement, a topic at the forefront of modern selling. Today, I'm joined by John Krumhauer, VP, North American Sales at Smart Drive Systems. Our focus is going to be talking about sales enablement from the view of the sales leader. Before we get into today's discussion with John, John, welcome to the show. Can you provide the audience just a little bit of information about yourself and Smart Drive Systems?
7: Thank you, Ralph. My name is John Krumhauer. I've been in sales for over 20 years. I'm with Smart Drive Systems. What we provide is a telematic system that provides video for commercial vehicles, everything from transit buses to cement mixers to semi-trucks to armored cars, and continually recording to mitigate risk for exposure from liability and to coach the drivers to be more safe for all of us on the
6: road. Fantastic. Very important topic today is sales enablement. I know this is something that's very much kind of passionate for you or something that we've talked about quite a bit over the last couple of years. So I'd like to just kind of talk a little bit about what's your view of sales enablement? It's obviously a term that has really kind of risen to the forefront over the last few years. We think about sales effectiveness and improving sales performance. But from the view of the sales leader, what do you think about when you hear that term sales enablement?
7: When I look at it, I look at it as overall sales, and I'll break it into two pockets, right? You have the art, the art form, and then you have the science. The science is what I look upon as the sales enablement piece, having that structure, having the process, having the right swim lanes and scaffolding to be able to support your sales efforts. The art, and you never wanna change the art, is that special unique power that those sales individuals bring to the table. Some of those individuals are the type of folks that you want to welcome to your house for Thanksgiving because you like them that much. Other sales people have the ability to just grind it and work nonstop. There's a whole bunch of different things from the art form. But that art form by itself, singularity, doesn't get you effective results until you bring the science part into it. And that's how I look at the sales enablement piece.
6: Yeah, I appreciate the idea of art and science and sales and the science being really emphasized of lately is definitely definitely at the forefront of modern selling with the availability of, of technology. A lot of folks think of sales enablement really as just being a technology, though. What would you counsel to them if, if you hear other sales leaders thinking about enablement as just, oh, I need a, I need a new app in the, in the sales stack, or I'm just thinking about things I can plug into CRM? I think that you're missing the boat to be candid with you.
7: The wholesale enablement gives you that ability to be able to put a structured process in place. Again, you don't want to diminish the art form. You know, there's very, very great sellers out there that do their things in their own unique ways. However, they can also cause great disruption within an organization, and it doesn't allow you to truly scale to the level that you could. What the enablement piece does is it gives you the content and the tools to be able to or by numbers, for lack of a better term. Take the information that you've garnered over the years in your organization or what you see your best sellers doing and replicate that in a repeatable format so anyone that joins the organization can follow suit to the systematic process that has made you win in the past.
6: Yeah, I like that. As a sales leader, I think a lot of folks maybe don't, if they haven't been in that seat, and you know, they don't really fully appreciate. You know the, the intensity of that role and, and really what's asked of you both from corporate and customers. And, and I'm wondering sort of where does enablement fit in your priorities? You obviously wake up every day thinking about the numbers you've got to hit and making sure that the board is happy and your CEO is happy and your customers are happy. Where does enablement fall in terms of your priorities as you kind of execute your, your own cadence in, in a week or a month or a year?
7: That's a great question, Ralph. I put it in my top three initiatives continually. Because in the high-growth technology world that I'm in, things are rapidly changing. Technologies are advancing. Competitors are becoming more vicious. Compression on margins is occurring. The typical thing that any sales leader is facing day in and day out, you want to be able to have a framework to allow your people to be successful. And your best sellers are extremely emotional human beings. That's what makes them great salespeople. And if you don't provide that framework and you try to counsel and coach up those folks, they can uh, interpret that as a personal attack, which uh, negates sales activity. By having a more framework, you're allowing your sellers to be successful. You can point to the documentation, to the technology, to your process, and it's not personal takes all that personal ambiguity out of the situation and drives the results that you're looking for.
6: Yeah, I like that. I mean it's really about how do you make sure you create an environment where, you know, your superstars can be still be superstars and be successful, but a but a really a foundation and a framework for your B players that, you know, are really going to be critical for you to hit your number. And that's really what a lot of enablement is about. As you think about the role of that frontline sales manager. In the enablement equation, obviously, we've seen a a great rise in in organizations funding enablement and having an entire team of enablement folks and and trainers and coaches and message specialists and people that just focus on onboarding and all all sorts of things, especially in the tech space. Where do you see the role of that frontline sales manager and how do they fit in the enablement equation?
7: Mission critical.
6: If you don't have their buy-in, you're not going to get any results
7: or you'll get some you'll be able to see a a moderate uptake, minimal uptake, but not the hockey stick uptake that you might be looking to accomplish. If you're looking for that, you have to have those frontline sales managers taught and bought in to this. And once they buy in, they have to coach continually to those sales reps. If that coaching isn't occurring from their frontline sales manager, you won't get the results that you're looking for, period.
6: Yeah. Any tips or tricks there? I know a lot of folks in our audience, you know, really view uh, that, that sales manager the same way and really getting that buy-in is, is it's probably the single greatest resistance point that we hear in clients and when we work with customers. Um, anything that you would share in your past experience to really finding really great sales managers that can really execute on the science of it. You know, a lot of them really grew up on the art side and now are being asked to execute programs and systems, you know, really relying on the science side of sales and getting their buy-in is so critical. Any, any tips or tricks to, to share with the audience around that?
7: I think bringing in folks early in whatever you're going to be doing, whatever yeah. transformation you're going to be doing with your sales team and bringing them in for their input on the journey. A lot of them will resist right away. It's their natural tendency. However, by bringing them in initially and including them in the conversations and getting their buy-in through that process, you're going to be learning a lot. You're going to be learning what they see from a field perspective, and you're going to be driving that buy-in from them to execute on the initiative for that organization. So I think the biggest thing that I've seen, Ralph, is including people early and often when you're making these types of movements within your sales organization. And you know, quite candidly, not everyone's going to be along for the full journey. I wish yeah. I could say they all will transform with you, but they won't. And
6: you're going to yeah. have
7: to upgrade your talent in, in certain yeah. situations.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's it's a stark reality, I think, as, as organizations really try to, to make transformational improvements in their sales effort is that the talent piece of this is not, not to be overlooked. It is something that's critical to, to not just having great talent, but also having talent that can, can adapt and can really execute on new things that are being asked of them. I'm curious, you recently kind of moved over to Smart Drive Systems. You've had to evaluate your team and the talent profiles there. Has the idea around enablement, are these can these folks be enabled, if you will, has that sort of filtered into your recruiting or your talent profiles at all? Are you looking for folks differently, knowing that you're going to ask them to really have to, to make some significant changes in how they sell?
7: 100%. And
6: I'm looking for things that can't be taught.
7: I'm looking for, in the interviewing process, folks that are coachable, that want to be coached. Some people are lifelong learners, others aren't. I'm looking for lifelong learners. I'm looking for, with that vein, people that are curious, naturally curious. And you can't teach someone to be curious. And you can't teach someone to have that hunger and that desire to win. And you can't teach someone to have courage to persevere, even though the changes are difficult, but having that courage to continue on the mission is another thing that I look for. So, you know, to answer your question on that, Ralph, absolutely. When you're going through looking at talent, if they don't have those things, it's very hard to teach them. And what you have to do is you have to make that difficult decision and part ways and, you know, bring in some talent that do have
6: those attributes. Yeah, I always think that's the hardest part about these, uh, you know, really executing enablement initiatives and in, in programs is there's a lot of emphasis on whether it's the content or the program or the coaching, which are all, all well and good. But a lot of times, you know, we're missing that front end assessment of these folks. Can they really make this transition? Are these the right people to be investing in to really make them successful, knowing that some of that population, just they're in the wrong seat and they need to um, they need to move on to, to other things. So.
7: And and, and the one thing Ralph, just to chime in real quick, is a lot of these folks have never had a definitive process. They don't understand the buyer's journey. They do it naturally, but they've never been exposed to the science of it. They've just been very good artists. And unless you have that structure and you're giving that to your sellers and your organization, you really don't know until you put that in front of them who's going to adapt and who isn't you really don't have a clue until you engage with that science aspect of it and then you see who's curious, who's coachable, who's got the courage to persevere.
6: Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point. I think a lot of folks in organizations, especially, you know, tech-based organizations that have seen countless enablement type programs and sales methodologies They come into these change initiatives with a little bit of a guarded lens, right? I mean, there's in the back of the room with folded arms around any initiative, or I've seen this before. And any counsel you have to sales leaders that are really working with, think think of older generation sales, sales personnel, and you're trying to execute really a transformative type initiative and really helping some folks that have been in the industry for 20 plus years to see the world a little bit differently because things have changed over that time. Any counsel to other sales leaders out there that are dealing with sort of, a, you know, that type of sales force that might be encountering some just change resistance?
7: I think we all f- see that. We have some folks that have been extremely successful. Uh, why would I want to adapt to this? Uh, you know, um, why would I want to join you on the journey? And I think what's in it for them is r- really needs to be spelled out up front to get that I in. And showing them that a repeatable model works, but getting them involved in the creation of what you're trying to accomplish. So, there's a couple ways of doing it, right? You come in and you say, This is how we're going to do it. And, you know, we know better than you. And here we go. Or there's another approach that you say, Hey, I want you to be part of this. I want to interview you, I want to get an understanding of what makes you tick. And what makes you successful? I want to take some of that and include it into our process. I've seen both sides. I've done both. And the one that has the best results is including people in that journey and getting them to buy in. Now, not everyone's going to buy in though, Ralph, right? But right, yeah. um, it will help certain sellers cross that chasm and certain
6: managers cross that chasm with you. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an understated point in, these, in a lot of sales enablement is really the role of enablement. Is really serving as sort of that change management expert. How we we're really changing behaviors, mindsets, and processes, and re-equipping reps to be successful, and a lot of just really great practices from change management really come to the forefront to executing these types of initiatives. So, very much echo that point. Getting them involved early, making them feel like they're part of the part of the solution, and not just, this isn't being done to them. So, excellent points there. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. <laughs>
1: And just as he said, a short break from our sponsor, the Brevet Group. They just want to remind you that they are a B2B sales consulting firm that bridges the gap between strategy and execution. They partner with complex organizations, maybe like yours, to increase sales productivity. Their unique approach combines strategic consulting with custom training and technology-driven reinforcement to help clients reach their sales goals. If you want to reach yours, just reach for your mouse and scroll over to thebrevetgroup.com, just like it sounds, T-H-E, Brevet, B-R-E-V-E-T, thebrevetgroup.com. All right, let's scroll over and uh, turn up the dial and uh, pick up our conversation where we left it.
6: Hi everyone, welcome back. I'm with John Frumhauer, VP North American Sales at Smart Drive Systems, and we're continuing our discussion around sales enablement and really the view of sales enablement from the sales leader, the the overall uh, you know top sales officer, thinking about the impact of sales enablement in their organization and leading significant change within that sales team to drive performance. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the integration between sales and marketing and the role that enablement uh, could play or should be playing in helping those two functions really come together. I'm curious, John, as, as you sort of think back over your 20 years, the conversation of sales and marketing integration is really festered for that long, if not longer, um, with each side viewing the problems a little bit differently. And with the rise of enablement, we have seen some some opportunities where Enablement is serving as that integrator between marketing and sales and really being the, the voice of the field to the marketing team. I'm curious, as you look at your sales system, how do you view marketing or what their role is and in their integration points with the sales team? And is there an opportunity for Enablement to continue to play that role or even step it up further? When you look at the historical aspects of, of my
7: journey, it was much more siloed 20 years ago. From a marketing and sales function now at this point in this juncture that I'm at today it's mission critical to be working hand in glove together and how we do that through the sales name but process is marketing helps provide insight and gives us insights from a market perspective on how we differentiate ourselves and we have to continually because we're in technology constantly be differentiating ourselves because new competitors jump into this market every month and compress our margins. So by leading with insight and grabbing key data points from how we are better than our competition, marketing has given us the framework and the structure to be able to say, here's our main differentiation, here are our uh, main talking points, here's how you'd position this. And we work collaboratively with our sales force and marketing jointly to come up with that messaging. And in a highly competitive, highly commoditized world that we live in today, you have to have those two groups working hand in glove together. Otherwise, you're not going to have the
6: effectiveness that you really need to drive results. Yeah, I think getting oftentimes, you know, has been viewed as, very distinct from sales, I think what we're seeing is, to your point, a lot more integration, a lot more collaboration. It's more than just, did you give me my MQLs and where are my leads this month, and diving into really around positioning and and effectiveness of that message to the field. I think those are all things that we'll likely see continue and and really probably get more and more involved in terms of enablement and integration of sales and marketing. I'm curious, as you think about your leadership team and, and the leadership teams you've been a part of, you know what are the characteristics for folks kind of in that marketing seat that tend to really work really well with sales leaders? or that vice versa. you you found marketing folks that you worked really well with. Just curious on how they view the world. Do they view themselves as really part of that revenue engine? Or are they more focused on what's happening with the customers at the customer level? I'm always curious getting into that mind of that marketer and just what do you think makes them tick to be the best partner for you on the sales side? I would say what I've seen is adaptability.
7: So folks that have the ability to very quickly adapt to the market uh, changes. And we're not always getting the best ideas from our customers. We get a lot of ideas from our customers. We execute on a lot of the ideas from customers. However, sure. going global outside of our own forest and bring to us new ideas that can translate into things that our customers have never even thought of before. So uh, having that marketing executive and team that is not just focused on their own industry, but have a very global view to other technologies that are out there, other things that aren't even in our uh, wheelhouse, and bringing those ideas into our Uh, organization uh, to execute upon
6: those are the best marketing executives that I've dealt with yeah got it yeah that's helpful I think as sales leaders out there I know that partnership with marketing is critical and finding that right partner on the marketing side of the table that kind of sees the view or sees the world in a a common way it can be a challenge sometimes but are we continue to be optimistic that marketing and sales integration will continue to occur and continue to prosper and sales enablement kind of being really at that integration point as we look to the future, John, any hypotheses around what we will continue to see kind of coming out of this enablement function as we think about their involvement in things like messaging and onboarding and the sales tech stack? I mean, we I, I don't know how many emails I get about AI and sales, and I just I'm really curious on your take of... You think about this tech stack and its continued evolution, and this art and science, is there a role for some of these more advanced tools? Will reps ever use them? I mean, we have enough trouble getting reps to use CRM right now. I, I'm trying to imagine how they're going to listen to an AI tool. But as you look into the future, I'm just curious like what do you think is out there? What are the things do you think are at the, the sort of bleeding edge here that you're considering or reading about that, that are catching your eye?
7: I see AI as something that is going to take out a lot of salespeople that haven't crossed the chasm
6: yeah. to be more
7: value oriented and, and consultative in their approach and challenger-esque, if you will. I see the AI tools really taking the commoditization of certain products and I want to say eliminating but driving down that mediocre salesperson. There always will be a huge need for your B and your A players and folks that are, that have that, that talent set. But I think as continue to see compression on margin and just advances and changes of how people are getting their information, uh, as we both know, everyone's going obviously onto the internet to do their own research prior to even reaching out to the salesperson. And with the right AI, they can just buy their stuff and not talk to a salesperson at all. So morphing the sales group and crossing that chasm to be able to be more of a challenger-type salesperson is going to be mission-critical for organizations like mine, the one that I'm with at SmartDrive.
6: Yeah, I think you're not alone in that. I think that's a at the next one point, and, and we continue to see deals are being pushed either in the more transactional, I can do things online, I can do things myself, or really, really highly consultative, and they need really that that advisor to help them make that purchase decision. And, and AI is going to play definitely a unique role in the coming years, really, on both fronts. So I'm very interested in that take. Thank you. would also like to thank you for joining Sales Enablement Radio. Uh, today's guest was John Frumhauer. A VP North American Sales at Smart Drive Systems. John, where can they find out a little bit more information about Smart Drive? Absolutely. Please go to our website at www.smartdrive.net. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can always check out more information around the Brevet Group at www.thebrevetgroup.com. Check out our latest blog and our latest research up on the website today. Fantastic. Thank you, John joining today and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you, Ralph.
1: You've been listening to another episode of Sales Enablement Radio, right here on the Funnel Radio Network for at-work listeners like you. Brought to you by the Brevet Group. Welcome, everybody. It's time once again to grab your boards, swim out into the sea of ideas, and see if you can catch a wave, maybe even catch a sales pipeline with the man behind, uh, well, actually, he's the man who started uh, National uh, Margarita Day here today, uh, Matt Hines. I did, I did. Not very many people know
8: that, Paul. I appreciate that you picked that up. You got that's that's deep on the Wikipedia page. Very so deep. I appreciate that, you got that. No, not true at all. So You know, we can do fake news like anybody. We're recording live today. I don't know if you can tell in my voice. We're recording live from the uh, from the uh, the Heinz farmhouse slash sick ward. I can tell you that the flu shot this year, my family, everyone in my family gets it every year. Uh, this year, I can definitively say it does not work. And here's my recommendation: one, keep getting the flu shot because every once in a while they get it right. And two. If you get the flu, go to the doctor, get the flu meds. The flu meds, they're amazing. So keep taking the flu meds, but uh, I, I'm on the downside. I got two kids on the upside. It's terrible. It's not good, but at least we're getting it out of the way. So that's all i got going to say about that. Fun times, uh, but uh, life goes on, business goes on, Sales Pipeline Radio goes on. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us today on Sales Pipeline Radio. We are here every week at 1130 Pacific, 230 Eastern covering everything B2B sales and marketing. We're featuring some of the best and brightest minds in the B2B sales and marketing industry today is no different. I'm really, really excited to have joining us today Joe Highland. He is the chief marketing officer for On 24. Joe, thanks so much for joining us.
9: Matt, glad to be here. And I did not realize we'd get we'd get medical as well as pipeline advice. So this is no, you, uh, this is impressive.
8: No, you get everything here. And Paul will tell you like you know we're 104 episodes in we do, we do fantasy football picks. There you go. Uh, we do, yeah, no, we do weather forecasting. We do, uh, we can, we, every once in a while, we'll have callers calling with all kinds of random stuff. We can do all kinds of stuff. Speaking of, speaking of randomness, uh, the question I wanted to start with you, uh, and I actually ask myself this a question sometimes as well. Like I, I'm a journalism major from, from a, a decent, uh, you know, uh, you know, public, West Coast public school. Um, and somehow as a journalism, political science major, I ended up in B2B marketing. How exactly, does a government major from Dartmouth end up slumming with B2B marketing folks uh, like us? Like, how what, what does that career journey look like? And how did you, I guess, get to where you are today?
9: That is a great question. Um I'm pretty lucky that I'm I'm here. A lot of my a lot of my friends uh, are in finance or they're traders, um, and I, I I can't imagine a worse profession. No master plan. I actually get asked that question a lot, n- not about my major, but you know how did, great, how did you become a, a head of marketing? Like you must have had this charted out since you were 22. I had absolutely no idea what I what I was going to do. I majored in government. I minored in psychology and economics, and Uh, it's probably the psychology that, that led me into marketing. Um, I'm fascinated by what drives people and and how people make decisions. It probably makes me really annoying in my personal life. Um, But that's, that's what I love about marketing. It's, it's, I think there's a major psychological element to, to how you persuade someone to do something, anything really. Um, And, you know, why buy on 24 over WebEx or, or go to webinar. Um, There's, there's a, there's an art of persuasion uh, that perhaps we haven't perfected, but um, for me, that's, that's what I love about marketing. So, yeah that's, yeah, that's why I slum it with B2B marketing folks.
8: That's a great answer. And I actually, I love the, uh, the background in psychology. I think it's a, it's a really easy sell, no pun intended, uh, to say, look, you got people buying based on logic and emotion in many B2B purchase decisions. You've got multiple members of this buying committee we talk about a lot where you have yeah. to build consensus among those folks. To get them to move forward. So understanding what makes them tick beyond just your, your features and your RI story, um, you know, makes a lot of sense. So uh, talk a little bit about what you guys are doing out on 24 and specifically since, you know, recording this less than two weeks away from Webinar World. Uh, you know, we'll, we're recording live now. We'll have this podcast out in a couple of days. For those that are listening before Webinar World, talk a little bit about the event coming up and why people should, uh, you know, a little last minute, why they should get registered and get there.
9: Yeah, we're, we're we're psyched for this. Um, so when I got to On Twenty Four about three years ago, we had I don't remember eleven or twelve hundred customers, like a lot of customers, and we had we had never hosted a, a customer conference. And I, I said to Sharat, um, my boss and our CEO, why? Um, and it's a big it's a big expense. It, you know, it, it's hard to it's hard to have these these events be profitable, and it, it's um, you know it takes a lot of planning. Um, and so for it took maybe a year and a half for me to convince him that, that we, should, we should invest in this and ultimately we should invest in our customers and there's nothing more powerful than getting your customers together and hearing, hearing what's great about you, what's great about On24, what, what sucks about us and, and what we should improve on. Um, and then ultimately for, um, I don't say this at the event, but uh, the truth is, uh, it is it is the gift that keeps on giving for pipeline. Um, mm-hmm. Getting getting happy customers to to talk about how they, they love working with you, and, and having prospective customers watch that it's like a it's like a dry run they don't they don't have to they don't have to pay anything the prospects and they they get to see what you know what it's like being a customer so that that's why we do the event it's funny when I called it um, when I first proposed it internally I, I called it webinar world pretty much everyone in the company said, well, yeah, it's a great idea. We should do this customer conference, but obviously we won't call it Webinar World. And I was <laughs> like, what do you mean? Well, why wouldn't we call it Webinar World? That's what we do. And they're like, oh, you know, maybe sales acceleration, demand generation conference. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, no, let's say what we do. We provide webinars. We do it better than anyone in the world. And we think we think that's a critical function in marketing. So hence the name. Yeah, we'll probably get about 1,000 people there. We had about 750, 800 last year. Yeah, we're, we're super excited. It's really an opportunity for our customers to talk about webinars and talk about how they're using webinars well, where, where, where they can improve upon. We give a couple presentations. Um, you're giving a presentation. So it's really about uh hearing from peers hearing from experts uh and we try to get the heck out of the way and 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 let that collaboration happen yeah
8: i think it's going to be a great event i i'm of course biased because i will be there i'll be speaking there and i'm looking forward to it but i would argue that doing you know getting together and talking about webinars is more important now than ever i mean it, 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 yeah. so many people are doing webinars it's more important now than ever to make sure they stand out to make sure they they're different to make sure that they you can create value in a format that isn't going anywhere um, but you mentioned something at the beginning of that. You, you said, you know, it's hard to make these events profitable and, and curious, you know, if for you as a marketing leader, if you look at this, is, is profitability the goal for something like Webinar World? Or you look at this as a, as sort of a, a, a ultimately a loss leader or a low cost way of yeah. getting the awareness and pipeline you want. Like, how do you think about the balance? there the objectives you have with an event of this size
9: yeah it really depends on who you're asking so me i don't care about making money at the event i think that is so uh incredibly short-sighted uh when we talk about this at the board level i mean it's it's not surprising that we we were encouraged to have this be profitable and i said listen this is, this is an investment in our customers, I mean, this is this is really an event for our customers. I think ultimately the event will pay for itself, but it's it's on the back end and it's it's contracts that we'll be getting out of customers or prospective customers, excuse me, who are considering working with On24. In the end, does it work out for us? Yes, but I really don't care about that. For me, if we put, we, we've only done one event, by the way, so we did it last year. It was a phenomenal event. I loved it. The idea was to have marketers talk about, things that work incredibly well for them, mostly around webinars, but not completely. Um, we talked about integrated campaigns, how to do it right, how not to do it right, how to avoid drive-by marketing, um, how to differentiate yourself. Uh, and yeah, of course, you know, webinars were involved, but it was really a marketing conversation versus just a, a tool or a tactic discussion. Um, so net-net, will it make money anytime in the near future? No. Um, even what we charge doesn't doesn't cover the the cost of the event Um, and a whole bunch of people end up, end up getting discount codes because for us it's important that it's an exciting event and we can make it profitable and have 250 people there. And what's the point? Um, So yeah, not, not our goal. And I don't see that changing anytime soon.
8: I like that. I want to talk a little more when we come back from our commercial break about integrated marketing and the, you know, I think finally we're starting to come back from the growth hacker phase of everything has to be measured and everything has to have a specific revenue target. And as much as I'm a math marketer, and I know you are as well, that you know to be able to do events like this, where you know that they fit into the broader picture, that the body of work is required to get you where you want to go from a revenue and growth standpoint. I'll we'll talk more about that. We got to pay a couple bills first, real quick. We'll be back with more with Joe Highland. He's the CMO of On24. We'll be talking more with Joe about integrated marketing, sales and marketing alignment, and lots more. We'll be right back.
1: Are you tired of sending sales emails and wondering if they ever even get opened? If so, you need MailTag. MailTag is a Chrome browser extension for your Gmail that allows you to track your emails in real time. You receive alerts right on your desktop as soon as your emails are read. And as a special thank you for being a listener of this show, we've teamed up with MailTag to provide you guys with da, 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 special discount on your MailTag subscription. Just type. Then the word Heinz, H-E-I-N-Z, you can get 50% off for life. Yeah, 50% off for life. What do you got to lose but uh, that question mark hanging over whether your emails got opened. Be sure to check out MailTag.io. I know it's a little different. MailTag.io to start your completely free 14-day trial, no credit card required. And afterwards, put in that code Heinz and get 50% off for life. You'll thank us afterwards in a world where the speed of innovation and change in b2b marketing has never been greater the only thing bigger is the need for clarity for a blueprint for a guide to what's really working and how about a way to apply it specifically today to increase sales pipeline growth velocity and most of all conversion that's what you'll find in the modern marketer's field guide And, amazingly, you can download it for free, HeinzMarketing.com, just like it sounds, H-E-I-N-Z-M-A-R-K-E-T-I-N-G. It encompasses the entire sales and marketing cycle, but in quick bursts with lots of specific, actionable ideas, strategies, tactics you can put to work right away, like today. The loaded table of contents helps you narrow in and tackle a problem. And it's something you can come back to over and over again as a reference guide. Why not download your free copy of the Modern Marketer's Field Guide? It's free. HeinzMarketing.com, just like it sounds. H-E-I-N-Z, Marketing.com. All right, back to uh, Matt and his guest. And before he does, I just got to point out, you both had political science backgrounds. I was a political science major, too. So it just shows you the power of that degree here.
8: The power of that degree. And, and also, I think, you know, when you think about the uh, the psychological impact of studying politics, you know, through the years and not just U.S. politics, but, you know, throughout world history and the nature of political science and think about sort of the, the, the logic and emotion that goes into those waves of decisions and everything. It's It's quite interesting. There you go. Yeah. Well, um, so like, like Joe said, we cover everything here. We got politics. We try, actually, we try not to do a whole lot of politics here on sales by prior radio, you know, but uh, we do get into, we get into uh, health, health recommendations. We get into college football. If anyone wants my, you know, way too early top 25 college football predictions, or more importantly, if you want to get, if you want to hear my, my Ivy league, no, I'm kidding. I'm not going to go there, but the, um, uh, <laughs> So Don't
1: ask him about his barbecue recipes. That's another one here.
8: No, well we'll 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 be done. Well fifteen minutes later, we'll be all done. Well we got we're out of time. We gotta go. Uh <laughs> boy, I totally got off topic. I lost my thought. Sales Pipeline Radio, we're back. We did not get a chance to set this up at the beginning very well here, Paul. Uh Sales Pipeline Radio. If you like what you're hearing today, if you're still with us after this zigzag conversation, it is entirely my fault. I'm blaming the flu. I get to I get that I get that chance this week. Uh, definitely check us out. Uh, we are on uh, the uh, iTunes and the Google Play where you can subscribe to every episode. Don't mix a single future episode of Sales Pipeline Radio. You can catch every episode, past, present, and future of Sales Pipeline Radio at salespipelineradio.com. Every episode is available on demand. And coming up in the next couple of weeks, got some more amazing guests. Uh, next week, the very beginning of March, we have Jill Conrad. She's one of my favorite sales authors and speakers. She's written a number of books that have become seminal works in the sales space. Uh, Jill Conrad joining us next week, followed by Manny Medina. He is the CEO of Outreach. And we're going to be talking to him about technology that your sales team can trust and t- is there trust that could be built between technology and your sales organization and your prospects and how to make that balance work. But today we're going to continue to talk a little more with uh, Joe Highland. He is the CMO of On24. And Joe, before we were went before we went off to the break, we were talking a little bit about, you know, how to justify things like a 1,000 person, 2,000 person you know, user conference and in you know, the last year's webinar world went really, really well. Got another one coming up here in a couple of weeks. You mentioned sort of looking at that and saying, yeah, we've got objectives for it, but I don't need it to immediately be profitable for it to be successful. Talk about how that perspective manifests itself in the way you look at integrated marketing campaigns overall. I mean, obviously, you know, you're being held to a number. You're expecting marketing to contribute to revenue and sales uh, goals within the company. But it sounds like you don't necessarily need every individual tactic, every individual instance of marketing to be cost justified. How do you think about that from an integrated marketing standpoint?
9: Well, you said something interesting when we, we were talking the other day, which was um, scorched earth marketing, um, yeah. where, it, you know, it, this stems from the, the, the growth hacker movement. I, I think more and more CEOs, particularly of smaller and medium-sized companies that are trying to grow super fast, are understanding and recognizing the importance of pipeline. So that part's great. I think marketers are playing a bigger and bigger role in that, and, and, and some are even stepping up to own it. Whether that's a good idea or not is a different discussion. So it's easy to become frenetic and have this week-by-week week or almost day-by-day day deluge of, of mark move away from building something that's ultimately going to last. And so I would take a step back, and I look at marketing uh, actually a similar basic principle that I would for economics. One of my first economics professors said to me early on, he said, it's super simple, but you either understand this basic tenet or you don't. And he drew a supply and demand curve and said, does this make sense? I was 18 years old and I knew nothing, but I said, yeah, I kind of get that. And he said, okay, you should explore economics. I think you'll find it interesting. And I say that because I think in marketing, the basic tenant, the, the, the corollary for supply and demand for economics is always about your audience and it is never about you. And that is so simple, but marketers stop more times than not. And it's so easy to because we have this pressure and we have these great products and we know the market absolutely needs our service, you name it, right? I think once you slide down that slippery slope, that's when you stop running integrated campaigns. That's when you stop having more of a holistic view of your marketing. That's when you start measuring success um, in a myopic fashion and it's week to week or day to day and that's when you're screwed like that's that's when you've that's when you start to lose the trust of, of your audience because you don't honor that trust you should be adding value and if you go back to the basic tenet of marketing you should be providing information a service a product whatever that completely hooks up your audience that completely Sets them up for success because it's all about them. It's never about you. And if you can stay true to that, you can do great marketing. Um, and so, to me, that's integrated marketing is understanding what you're trying to solve, how you're solving it. You know how whoever whoever you're marketing or selling to would be kind of screwed without it. Uh, and if you stay true to that, you're you're good.
8: I like that a lot, and I, and I agree with everything you're saying. And I think in the sometimes in the ivory tower. Uh, you know conversations that are you know sales pipeline radio and situations like this. Like we can talk about that, but to do that in an operational capacity, it requires a a cultural. It, it requires enough people elsewhere in the organization, especially your peers, even like you know your board members, your investors, to also buy into that. Talk yeah. a little bit about the cultural requirements to take that kind of an approach to marketing, where you can have revenue responsibility, but also. Uh, for lack of a better description, kind of take the long view and do the right thing for the long-term value of the business and the brand.
9: Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, there, there's not a simple answer, truthfully. I think it comes down to having a, a well-thought-through strategy that you then have tactics and uh, you know, items to execute that support it, and it requires some trust. So uh, I'll, I'll speak at On24. When, when I got here, Pipeline was, was a huge problem. Um we were growing pretty fast because we had a nice market fit. We had to change a lot of things. And the, my first discussions with the board, most importantly with our sales leader and with our CEO, was we need to come up with a plan that makes sense, that we all agree with, and then we need to be patient and that work can be difficult. And I don't mean patient like multiple quarters from now, but we, we need we need to give this time to work. Then once we start seeing traction and positive uh, uptick. We can analyze what's working. We can do more of that. We can, we can determine what's not working. We can, if at all possible, cut that out and, and move dollars into the categories where we're getting positive returns. I think then, so after you have that trust and then you start seeing success, you build credibility and, and you don't have that that week to or, week or heaven forbid, day to day stress and push. If you can't get that commitment upfront, run, like leave. Because that just won't change, and so for me, that was that occurred in the first, I don't know, month uh, of the job here, and that was three years ago, and we, we've had great growth since, and we build we build over two million dollars uh, of pipeline a week. We 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 build a lot of pipeline here, but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that way three years ago. It's it's taken time.
8: That's amazing. That's a great story. Yeah, you know, we're wrapping up here with Joe Hyland. He's the CMO, Chief Marketing Officer for On Twenty Four, and. Final question for you, Joe. We always run out of time before we get to all the stuff we want to talk about. But, yeah. You know, one question we ask everybody as we, as we wrap up is, you know, who are some of the people that, that have been influential for you in your marketing career? They can be people that are dead or alive. They can be professors. They can be authors, um, they can be peers that you've worked with. But who are some of the people that, you know, you as you would cite as some of your uh, greatest sources of inspiration or people that you would recommend other people read or pay attention to as they continue to evolve their b two b careers as well.
9: yeah, I don't know, I don't know if you can find any information on this guy. My first boss out of school was a guy by the name of Jim Gargan. I was at a company called Stratus Technologies and he totally changed my career. he He went on to be a longtime executive at IBM. He's over at uh, at Oracle now. Uh, he's an SVP of marketing. super aggressive guy. In, in a positive way, <laughs> that sounds mm. negative. Um, he, a uh, super aggressive marketer, shall I say, he told yeah. me, always differentiate, you need to be loud, whatever you're marketing, and it depends on the company and in, in, in the space, of course. And the smartest thing you can do is tie yourself to customers and preferably growth as a marketer. And he talked about kind of more BS side of marketing and the softer side of marketing, not, not that that's uh, to be forgotten about, um, but he said, if, if you know your customers, and you tie yourself to growth. You always have a great career. And you know, that was almost 20 years ago. And, and I, I still think about it, you know, every time I'm asked the question about who's influenced me. And that's awesome. That's a great story.
8: Well, thanks again, Joe. I want to thank again, again, our guest, Joe Highland, is the CMO at On24. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up here. If you would like to attend Webinar World, if you want to come see us, it should be a great event if you're listening to this before uh, March 7th, uh, 2008, 18, 2000, not that 2008. Boy, did they do podcasts about that, Paul? I think maybe, I don't know. But there was not a webinar world. They've only been doing it for two years. So if you're listening to this before March 7th, see, this is the flu. It's just driving me nuts. Uh, March 7th, 2018, check out on24.com. Uh, you can find more information about webinar world we'll put links for registration in the notes for this podcast as well and if you're listening to this after that date still check out on 24.com great service we use it ourselves and uh, i'm sure you'll be able to see some uh some recaps from the great event that they're going to have here in a couple weeks join us next week we'll have jill conrad she's an author of several books on sales sales strategy one of my favorites in the sales space super honored to have her on the show uh, and join us every thursday 11:30 pacific 2:30 eastern and join us on the podcast, SalesPipelineRadio.com. Everywhere find podcasts are sold. For my great producer, Paul, this is Matt Hines. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Sales Pipeline Radio.
1: You've been listening to Sales Pipeline Radio. Brought to you by the good folks at Matt Hines Marketing. Right here on the Funnel Radio channel. Welcome, everybody. It's time for another episode of Asher Sales Sense, brought to you by Asher Strategies, the only global sales training company that integrates leading sales methodologies and the latest neuroscience studies into a simple and repeatable, that's the key, simple and repeatable, 10-step process for sales success.
10: Thank you, Paul. Paul's our announcer for Asher Sales Sense, and I'm Dave Potts in the Asher Strategies Studio in Washington, D.C., our host today is Kyla O'Connell, Senior Partner and Sales Facilitator at Asher Strategies. And the title of the show is, If You Think LinkedIn Doesn't Matter for Your Business, Here Are Five Reasons You're Wrong. Kyla's guest is Judy Schram, CEO of Pro Resource, a marketing agency that specializes in executive branding. Topics covered during the program will include some myths about LinkedIn, common mistakes that are made, and the bare minimum every professional needs to have on their LinkedIn profiles. Kyla, over to you.
11: Thank you, Dave, and welcome, Judy Schramm. We're so happy you're here today. I'm delighted to be here. Wonderful. This is such an important topic. I know at training, it comes up, and we actually give it almost an hour. It's that important. So I'm so happy that you're part of this show with us because of the magnitude of how we are going to uh, learn about this tool and how the magnitude of the tool in all of our lives today as professionals. I'd like to start by asking, to what degree LinkedIn has changed over the last couple of years and why it's so critical to business professionals to be engaged with it?
12: Well, it has actually changed a lot over the past couple of years. And one of the biggest changes is something that's happening outside of LinkedIn that makes LinkedIn increasingly important. And that is the way Google search algorithm works and then the Microsoft acquisition of LinkedIn. LinkedIn has been working closely with Google. As a result, when you Google someone, any of us, typically the LinkedIn profile will be right at the top of the search results. So people are likely to click on it. That means it's your opportunity to control what people are finding out about you. Microsoft is also directing traffic to LinkedIn. They've integrated LinkedIn with the Office suite. They're planning many more integrations. They've said they want LinkedIn to be your professional presence online. So you have both Google and Microsoft driving traffic to LinkedIn. It's very difficult to uh, lose that opportunity. But there have also been a lot of changes uh, inside of LinkedIn. A lot of the most popular features have been moved to paid versions. Uh, video is much more prominent. The publishing platform has taken on increased prominence so that it becomes possible to position yourself as a thought leader. And there are many more advertising options as well. So there's a lot going on with LinkedIn. That's, oh, wonderful
11: news. <laughs> I think it's all.
12: <laughs> well, it's, to those it's of us who all... know and love LinkedIn, yes.
11: Yeah, yeah. I mean, to have Microsoft and Google, what are they like the in the top 5 companies in the world driving traffic to this platform, um they rarely get that these types of things wrong. So I think it's safe to say you can no longer ignore LinkedIn. Do you agree? Yes. It is
12: possible for some people to ignore it, just like it's possible for some businesses to exist without a website, but uh, if you're a professional or executive or you sell to professionals or executives, it really is essential.
11: Yeah. It's interesting. You made that correlation, uh, to a business not having a website. Cause that's exactly what I say in sales training. I said, if you, if you're a sales professional or in management or anybody who is certainly anybody who's customer facing selling B2B and you don't have a LinkedIn profile, it would be like having a company without a website. I totally agree with that. What are some common myths? About LinkedIn that turned people off from using it?
12: Well, one that I still hear sometimes is that I don't need to be on LinkedIn because I'm not looking for a job. And, you know, while LinkedIn did start as a resume database, it has been more than 10 years since it stopped being just a resume database. It's now an essential sales tool. Another thing that I hear sometimes from CEOs and decision makers is that they don't like LinkedIn because they get a lot of spammy emails from people who are trying to sell them something. And you know, certainly I think everybody who's on LinkedIn gets some of these messages and you know, the higher you go in the company, the more of them you're likely to get. But, you know, what I tell people is, you know, we all get spam emails as well and we don't stop using email. LinkedIn is your 24/7 networking device. I mean, we're going to talk a lot more about the power of LinkedIn, but you know, your competitors are out there using it. Everybody's out there using it. If you don't use it in your company because you don't like the way some people are
11: misusing it, then you're losing the opportunity. Yeah. One of the common objections I hear, Judy, often is my customers aren't on there and aren't on (laughs) LinkedIn. (laughs) And I challenge that because what I'll typically say is, um, okay, who are you selling to? Well, I sell to, let's say warehouse managers, people who you know manage a, a warehouse or something. And I said, okay, well, even if they're not on LinkedIn, I would bet that their boss and his boss's boss are on LinkedIn. So you know, even if there are certain positions that don't lend itself to LinkedIn and you sell to one of those positions, it doesn't mean that a decision a decision influencer, isn't on LinkedIn. And I was actually able to prove uh, this point to one of my coaching clients during a session where he was able to find a VP of Logis- warehouse logistics. We were able to schedule that meeting during our coaching session. So it was really <laughs> powerful, <laughs> really powerful. Yeah.
12: Uh, yeah. Reason to use LinkedIn. One of the data points is 29% of the US adult online population is on LinkedIn but it rises to 75% of people who make more than $74,000 a year. 50% of college graduates, the odds that your target market is
11: not on LinkedIn are quite small. Right. Um, so one thing I've always found interesting about LinkedIn is that more more experienced or older generations actually have an advantage on LinkedIn over young professionals just starting out because the young professionals are building their network slowly as they gain more experience. But somebody who's been working for 20 years can build their network up in a week because typically their network's already there and they just have to start reaching out. Are you finding more experienced professionals beginning to understand the value of LinkedIn?
12: Oh, absolutely. I mean, just like you said, somebody who's been successful in business not only has a large network, but they're typically very good at building relationships. And, and they have a lot to say on their LinkedIn profile and they have a lot to offer when they interact with people. So once they understand how to translate what they do in the real world onto LinkedIn, they are off to the races. There's a lot of power there. But it's important to, to note that the fastest growing segment on LinkedIn is the younger people. And colleges now in, are encouraging the students to join LinkedIn as early as their freshman year. And we've actually talked to a number of high schools who want to offer LinkedIn coaching to their students. And the young people have a nice advantage as well in that they understand at an instinctive level how social media works because they grew up with it. So once they learn the strategy you know, and how to handle themselves in a business environment, they're in good shape as well. So old or young, there's a lot for you on LinkedIn, and it's
11: easier than you think. Right, right. Yes, I am starting to see some of my uh, friends who have children in college are starting to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I was like, wow. Okay. Well, many digital marketing experts are claiming by 2019, just a couple months away, that Americans will absorb 80% of their information via video on the Internet. Is LinkedIn following this trend with more use of video?
12: Yes, absolutely. They're prioritizing video in the newsfeed. I don't know if you've noticed that recently. I certainly haven't. And I'm hearing from a lot of people who are saying that their newsfeed is full of video right now. And so as a result, um, you get greater reach on LinkedIn by posting a video than you do from posting a blog post or sharing a, an article or a piece of news. It's very impressive. I've had hundreds of views within just an hour or two, and you know one of the reasons for that is the numbers. The data point that everybody likes to cite is that video gets 1,200 percent more engagement than text or images alone, and people watch native video three times longer than regular videos. So uh, native video, which is what LinkedIn is is really pushing the hardest. It, their version of, a, of live video is incredibly powerful.
10: Kyla, it's time to take a quick commercial break. Over 200 correlation studies show that natural aptitude is the most significant factor in predicting sales success. Asher's advanced personality questionnaire, the APQ, consistently identifies peak performers in outside sales, inside sales, sales management, customer support, and 17 other business positions. Go to asherstrategies.com today or call 866-833-9941. That's Asher Strategies at 866-833-9941. We've been speaking with Judy Schram, CEO of ProResource on the professional social media power of LinkedIn. Now back to Kyla and Judy.
11: Judy, hopefully we've piqued the interest with these amazing stats um, to anybody who isn't quite yet fully functioning on LinkedIn to, you know, give it a shot and and get on board. What is the bare minimum every professional needs to have on their LinkedIn profile?
12: The three minimum things would be a current photo, their full work history going back 20 years, ideally, and their education. It's not so much what is the minimum. It's what does LinkedIn require to, be co- to give you a complete rating. And the reason for that is that LinkedIn sends all profiles that are not, quote unquote, complete to the bottom of the search results. So if you want to be found, you have to meet LinkedIn's requirements for a complete profile. And that includes a photo, three jobs, three skills, 50 connections,
11: an industry, a location, and your education. OK. I'm taking some notes here. <laughs> Good to know. What are the most common mistakes people make on their LinkedIn profiles, or how they are actually engaging on LinkedIn? Like some common mistakes that people make.
12: The one thing that always makes me cringe is when I see people using emojis on their profile. It's just, uh, yes, you know, it draws the eye, but it, it, it also looks just a little bit tech. Tax- but for sales executives, the biggest mistake that I see is people who have job seeker, what we call job seeker profiles. And that is people who are writing about why someone should hire them, rather than why someone should do business with them. And, you know, if you are in job seeking mode, then that's one thing. But most of the people who you care about who come to your profile are coming to, to look at whether they should do business with you, whether they're going to take a meeting, whether they're going to respond to the message they receive. And so your profile really needs to be written to a customer rather than to a recruiter. And then, Another mistake that I see people make is that there are some salespeople who think that LinkedIn is just all about the numbers and that what they need to do is just blast their message in front of the absolute maximum number of people and be as salesy as possible and somebody will come back and buy. That's not only ineffective, it's it's also annoying. As a result, that can really turn people off.
11: Absolutely. People ask me all the time in in sales training classes when we discuss the importance of LinkedIn, if they should connect with everyone they know and also about connecting with competitors. So what is your perspective on these, in these areas?
12: Well, you can connect to everyone you know, but it's better to connect to people you respect. So rather than uploading your entire contact database, think about who do you admire? Who do you who do you respect as a colleague, or a peer, or an industry influencer? And then connect with those people. Because when people come to your profile, they can see who you are connected to that they are also connected to. And you want that to be a list of people they like and respect. Because when you do that, you have instant credibility. So, we recommend focusing more on the quality of the connections than the quantity. But obviously, the more connections you have, the more findable you're going to be. LinkedIn, among the other factors in search results, is how much you have in common with the person who's doing the searching. And so when you have connections in common, when you have experiences in common, LinkedIn will rank you higher. So having a bigger network makes you more findable. You know, the other question that you know we get asked is about the competitors, and uh, the answer that I like to give. If there is that you have to think about who's going to get more out of the connection. If this happens to be a competitor who you know is, is very aggressive and they are going to mine your network for your clients and your prospects and then aggressively reach out to them and market to them, then, uh, I would say no. <laughs> but if it's, uh, if it's a competitor where you have a more collegial relationship, You know, maybe on occasion you refer them business and they refer business to you if, you know, if you're not a fit, then uh, what you would want to do is connect with them because then you can keep on top of what they're doing. You can mine their network and can um, find out what's new with them, which can be information that can be quite useful to you.
11: Okay. That that was very helpful. Thank you. What are some hidden benefits or features on LinkedIn that few people know about or how to leverage properly?
12: Well, one is Sales Navigator. I, I talk to a lot of people who have no idea what power is available in Sales Navigator, which is the level of LinkedIn that is designed specifically for salespeople. So, for example, some of the things that you can find on LinkedIn, the searches that you can do, If you have the Navigator version, you can find companies that are growing rapidly. You can find companies where, for example, a particular department, like say the engineering department, is doubling in size. There's a lot of information available to you about how the company is changing over time. You can get a list of people who are new in their jobs, because those people are very often the ones who are most open to trying something new. You can get lists of companies that use specific technologies. And then one of my favorite features is the search, search alike feature, which is where, uh, if you get a list of, uh, people who meet your criteria, first of all, you can take that list and you can save that search and have people notify you, uh, sorry, have LinkedIn notify you every week or every month as new people are added. But when you find like somebody who is absolutely ideal, you can click the button that says, show me more people like this. And LinkedIn will use artificial intelligence to go out and get other people who are similar to that person, which can be a way to surface people who have, who might have odd titles or, you know, for whatever reason might not turn up in a traditional search, but they will turn up in a search alike search. So that's one of my favorite things second Kyla, thing...
10: Kyla and, and Judy, it's time for the wrap-up.
12: <laughs> okay. Um, I'll just say one, one other trick. Now, I don't know if you've noticed those green dots on the profiles. Those yes, tell you... what are they? Yeah, those tell you people who are online right now. So the, oh. the green... Yeah, the green circle is people who are on mobile. The solid green circle is people who are on uh, their desktop. And if you reach out to people when they're logged into LinkedIn, you can get a conversation started right away.
11: Oh, that is wonderful to know. Thank you. Well, we have a couple of minutes left. Are there any last thoughts? And also, how can you be reached? So the one thing I
12: would say is people on this podcast are very familiar with John Asher. And one of the most powerful things you can do on LinkedIn is to do what John recommends particularly the part about selling to the old brain, So, and just a couple important ways to do that. So, first of all, make it about the people you are selling to. One of the, the facets of the old brain is that it's me, me, me. It's people care about themselves much more than they care about your solution. So, when you're interacting with people, make it all about them. And then, uh, second of all, stand out. You have the ability on LinkedIn now to create a really colorful visual profile that differentiates you from the other people, the other profiles they might be looking at. And that can um, make you significantly more memorable. And then as far as how to reach me, well, I would ask people to reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's uh, (laughs) 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 linkedin.com slash in slash Judy Schramm or by email is fine too, and it's jschramm, S-C-H-R-A-M-M, at proresource.com.
11: Thank you so much, Judy, for joining us today. This was extremely helpful. Back to you, Dave.
10: Thank you, Kyle and Judy. That's all the time we have for today. Our next show in two weeks is titled, Bringing Success to Distribution Sales Teams. Be sure to join us. Paul, take it away
1: you've been listening to another episode of asher sales sense radio right here on asher strategies radio learn more about how john asher and his training and coaching team of former business leaders can help you close deals faster at asherstrategies.com welcome to growth bound b2b a program hosted by katie bullard and sponsored by Discovery discover welcome katie
13: thanks paul paul roberts is our announcer for all programs on the funnel radio channel this is the inaugural episode of the growth bound b2b podcast and i cannot be more excited first i want to address the elephant in the room what the heck does growth bound even mean? Is it another buzzy marketing word that somebody's come up with? Well, yes, kind of. But at the end of the day, the way we think about this is, you know, no matter how big you are, no matter what industry you're in, no matter whether you're in sales or marketing, ultimately the holy grail we're all trying to reach is to hit that next stop in our growth journey. And quite frankly, to get there faster than our competitors. The goal isn't to drive inbound, it's not to drive outbound, It's to get growth bound, And that's our mission on this podcast is to share the stories from leaders of companies that are successfully delivering smart, strategic, scalable revenue growth. We're going to tell the story of how they got there and how you can get there too, whether you're a company of five or whether you're on the Fortune 500. Today, our program is going to focus on the three to four things that the world's fastest growing companies do differently than anyone else. And we have one of my favorite growth experts here with us to do just that. So I'm super excited. Justin Gray, CEO of LeadMD. He's a serial entrepreneur, renowned consultant, and carries the fabulous nickname, The Farmer. So we're going to start there. Let's start with the important things. Justin, where did that come from? This isn't another like hunting, farming, sales analogy, is it?
14: Yeah, unfortunately not. So yeah, it's, it's great to be first. Thanks for having me on the show. Really excited to be here. The farmer nickname started when we launched our first website and we wanted everyone in the in the organization really to have a nickname that conveyed something about themselves, their personality, and so on. And, and mine was kind of a no-brainer since I do own a farm in rural Missouri. So we are fully organic certified. Currently, we do field crops, wheat, corn, soy, and are moving into the CBD space, which is a cannabinoid space. It's non-THC bearing uh, cannabis. So... A little, little bit of background there, and and uh, obviously a very applicable niche.
13: Nice. So, can I buy your produce at a farmer's market somewhere around? You can
14: yeah, if, if you are in rural Missouri, you can stop by <laughs> a High View. Uh, which is like a local grocery chain. And, and we actually sell through there as well as farmer's markets.
13: Good deal. Good deal. So for our audience from rural Missouri, you know where Pop, to go.
14: Hop on out there. Yeah, buy, buy some tomatoes.
13: So Justin, let's talk a little about LeadMD. LeadMD's whole mission really is to help marketing teams take their growth to the next level. You guys have this revenue acceleration framework that you use to do that. And I thought that's that was a, a one of the foremost reasons I wanted you to be our first guest on here because I think what we want to do today is kind of set this framework for what it really takes to get growth bound. You've worked with a ton of companies, right? All sizes, all shapes, all industries. Why don't we start with what you see across the board? So regardless of the differences of the companies that you work with, are there three or four core components of accelerating growth that every fast-growing company focuses on?
14: Sure. I I think the question is more what three to four elements should they focus on. The overwhelming trend that we see is just a, a, a jump in Headfirst into the technology layer. You know, technology is sexy. It's easy to buy. It very much has that kind of shiny object appeal to it, and so on. Uh, although technology, and I think Joe Rally has a great quote around this. You know, a fool with the tool is still a fool. It needs to be enabled by really strong strategy, planning, tactics that are all wrapped up into a solid go-to-market strategy, and then we can work in in terms of bringing on technology to help us scale those processes obviously enabling that technology with data. I'm I'm giving you more than four right now. I think I gave you five so far. The sixth would be really talent and change management, which is the bottom pillar within our revenue acceleration framework and and probably one of the most neglected areas. Really best in class organizations, orgs that we really see succeeding with marketing and, and marketing driven revenue are focusing on curating a really strong marketing team. Rooted with great talent and really understanding how that process is going to be managed over time. What does that change management process look like? Things like documentation, things like just understanding that change is going to happen. And when it does, we need to precipitate that across the team. So I think having really strong, a really strong talent education and, uh, and curation process is, is key. Uh, coupling that with change management as well is, is what I would wrap up on kind of that, that sixth pillar.
13: So I love that note that you ended on right there around change. I know when I first came on board here at Discover.org about six months in, I had somebody on the team ask me, you know, so when's the change gonna slow down? And, and I said, Never. if the change slows down, we're doing something wrong, right? What fast growing companies do is is they're they're constantly changing. So you talked about six different things. You talked about a couple of right, a couple of them were tools, talent. What I'm curious about is if I am a startup business, I've got, you know, five employees and I'm just trying to get my product off the ground, I'm not gonna be able to invest in tools the same way a big company is going to invest. I'm not going to be able to invest in talent or resource something the same way that a big company is going to be able to invest. So let's take kind of three size companies. Let's take a startup with five people. You know, let's take a mid-sized company, maybe I've got a hundred people and I'm trying to I'm trying to break through and let's take a large established business that's got a bunch of quite frankly upstart competitors that are Sure. trying to trying to unseat me. How does that framework change? Or how do the priorities within that framework change based on those three different types of companies?
14: I think the interesting thing and, and what we tried to solve with this framework is that the, the the actual focus areas, the boxes on this framework really don't change. It's just the amount of time and, and, and people and investment that we can spend in each one of these focus areas that is highly variable. And obviously... Time and money are, are the biggest variables within that process. So regardless of whether you're that hyper-growth startup and you've got your eyes on, on really grandiose success, but you're starting small and efficient, and everyone's wearing multiple hats, and, and you really need to get the most out of every single resource, or whether you're in that enterprise environment where you've got really fleshed out teams, things move a little uh, more slowly, there's more focus on change management, and, and, and just those planning and risk prevention processes right? that you don't typically have in a startup you're still gonna walk through creating a really solid marketing strategy that aligns to the corporate strategy. You're still gonna need to translate those into what we call planning. How how does that translate into messaging and positioning and content? How am I gonna set my budgets around those different channels? Uh, And then ultimately, how am I gonna create processes out of, of the overall strategy? and translate that maybe into a a couple different go-to-market strategies. Maybe account-based is right for the business. Maybe demand generation is more of a fit. I think the framework allows us to define the big problem that we see across marketing, which is no one really understands everything that goes into marketing. There's definitely areas of focus and, and that people gravitate towards, but this allows someone to step back and say, okay, here's everything that is a dependency within marketing, right? Like, What are all of these different areas that feed into our tech and data layer and that are going to yield results when I start to apply some velocity as of scale? Obviously, it's my framework. I'm pretty bought into it. But really, if you take a look at the the, the tool that we put together, you're going to be able to walk through each one of those boxes and say, number one, I need to address this in some sort of fashion. But with the size that we are right now and the tools I have at my disposal, I may have to spend less time on something like competitive intelligence or brand strategy and i may need to spend more time on market research and and really like the things that are truly going to move the needle when you're just trying to get that first 100k in mrr so I, i think it really is about avoiding neglect in any one of these areas but applying the right amount of resource and time based on where you're at as an organization
13: so i'm curious you're a serial entrepreneur you've had businesses you've sold businesses think back whether it was LeadMD or one of the other businesses when you were in that startup mode, I'm just curious, what were like the one or two things that you think about that you think that's what made us get to the next phase of growth? Like that's the thing that made us successful
14: you yeah, know buyer research hands down certainly lead md started with cmo interviews and practitioner interviews and i was a very early user of marketo and and so i was sitting in the seat that i wanted to ultimately sell into right the marketing department that had a tool that was struggling to get the most out of that tool and so i had a pretty good persona for who i thought i would be selling into but you know, it made me realize I'm not the comprehensive buyer here, right? Like I have a tendency towards early adoption. I want to get the the absolute most out of that tool. There are a lot of other nuances and needs that our buyer needs to have addressed. And so it really allowed us to take that real world uh, understanding and scale that into our messaging and our website, our content, our nurture strategy, and quickly identified the type of buyer that we were dealing with and put the right resources in front of them so we could educate them and build trust. So any business that I'm talking to, normally is having some sort of conversation around how do I invest in the marketing, what channels do I deploy, what's the best technology to purchase, and I will always gravitate back towards that early advice, which is you need to put as much resources as you can into understanding your buyer, how they buy, how they build trust, and that will inform the rest of your process.
13: Such a good point. I have a lot of conversations with our customers here from Discover Org. I'll get on a call with them and start to put together a strategy for them using the tool. And the first question I always ask is, who's your target? and What do they want? And I would say 50% of the time, they don't actually know who that buyer is. And so then I pivot and I'm like, then that's where we have to focus. Like if you don't know who the buyer is, or if you think the buyer is everybody, we've got to narrow this down.
14: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, starting out, you don't have a ton of resource to go out and conduct those buyer interviews and do focus groups and so on. So again, you have to be smart about spending the time and money that you do have. As the business progressed, we were fortunate enough to go out with folks like Craig Rosenberg and have Topo do our buyer interviews, right? Like we we had enough customers at that point where we could go out and really talk to them about What did you find valuable about our service? Where did you find us in the first place? What would cause you to purchase again or or get into another engagement? Um, If there were a retainer customer and they fell out, we wanted to know why and how we were perceived across the organization. And again, that really allowed us to react and pivot Uh, our message and even our process, our delivery process, to fill some of those gaps and and really capture, frankly, the largest share of the marketing wallet that we could. So certainly it's not a one-time process either. It's something that will continue over time. And and I think if you're succeeding and you're seeing some traction, you can continue to invest in, in that research and it will pay dividends.
13: Great advice. Back to basics. Well, Paul has signaled me to take a break and hear from our sponsor. We've been talking with Justin Gray of LeadMD on the subject of what the world's fastest growing companies do differently. and We'll be back in just a minute.
1: And we just want to remind you uh, as we take a quick break here in our program that um, how many more meetings could you set if your team made three times more calls per day and conducted directly to decision makers think about it how much bigger could your pipeline grow if you book 20 percent more meetings this month don't worry visit discoverorg.com and you can learn how to do that just hit their forward slash growth bound b2b to learn more that's (laughs) discoverorg.com And B2B sales and marketing is tougher than ever. Does your data rise to the challenge? Connecting you to the right decision maker? Revealing the message to nail your pitch? Saving hours of grind? Surfacing accounts that are ready to buy. It's time to demand more from your data. Visit discoverorg.com forward slash growth bound B2B to learn more. That's discoverorg.com. And now back to Katie.
13: Nice to hear from our sponsor. Uh, Again, we've been talking with Justin Gray of LeadMD on the subject of what the world's fastest growing companies do differently. So Justin, let's pivot to some companies that are catching your eye. You know, it seems like every day, especially in the sales and marketing technology landscape, there's a new business that's you know capturing the eyes of the investors, the public markets, all of us buyers. What's one successful high growth company that you've been watching that others need to keep an eye on?
14: Yeah, I'm, I am have a little bit of a love affair going on with Drift right now, both from a, a technology standpoint and then just their overall market position. So I would definitely cite Drift. And, and what they're doing from a marketing standpoint is just really cool and and refreshing. And to me, it kind of feels like 2009 Marketo a little bit, um, when Marketo was kind of in that space where everyone wanted to market like they were marketing. I feel a lot of that spark with Drift currently. And, and again, the solution is it's sexy and it's simple and it addresses a fundamental need. Based around now marketing rather than down the road marketing. You know, so many of our solutions are conversion focused and then someone fills out a form and, and then we follow up with them. And when we do follow up with them, our goal is to set a meeting that's further down the road. Um, I think the, the concept of, of meeting a buyer right now and doing that same informed content and messaging and, and process and alignment. In that real-time manner is just a really, really exciting concept, and uh, one that is obviously catching on. and It'll be interesting to see how they mature and, and capture again a larger part of that buying process through uh, chatbots and AI and, and all of the intelligence layering that they're doing.
13: I'm curious. You talked about AI. What do you think AI looks like in Martech in 2019?
14: I mean, I think it looks like a cluster. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, if you ask 10 marketers, the one thing they're going to agree on is that their data is, is not good. And so AI is completely data dependent. So I was a very early adopter of predictive marketing or predictive analytics or whatever you want to call them, the ever strings of minticos of the world, right? And. I, I saw some of the early results that they came back with and just our data was 100% the linchpin to getting those good results back. And we had to do a ton of signal muting and, and just you know model building to carve out some of the inconsistencies and the problems. You know the, the transient nature of marketers The data that we were looking at, like 20% of the folks weren't even at the company any longer. And so, you know, we haven't solved for those really fundamental data channel challenges, which to me means that AI is far too early to market right now. It's, you know, you mentioned at the top of the hour buzzwords and, you know, how attracted we tend to be to those items. And I think AI is certainly falling into that group right now. Uh, Again, B2C is so far ahead of B2B uh, in terms of just good solid data architecture, structure, and curation that B2B needs to catch up. And, you know, although AI is a super exciting and valuable tool, until we solve for our, our data problem, it's it's definitely not going to be the solution that it could be.
13: I completely agree with you. In the world of AI let's let's assume we've got clean data, AI. I'm curious what role do you think humans play in the sales process there because i I agree with you on the the whole concept of now marketing, right the The idea of this linear funnel is broken. It's ultimately right. broken. But what role do humans play in that world?
14: Yeah, I, I think humans play a, a super important role within that ideal process. Really, all of the automation, and there's a big scare around that, right? Like in that transcends industry, um, that robots are going to replace the human aspect and you know we're all going to be out of a job and so on. That's really not the case. I mean, r- automation, workflow, robot, bot, whatever it happens, the naming convention tends to be, uh, really replaces the elements that shouldn't involve a human to start off with there were the elements that if you look at like marketing in the early 2000s right like in order to get any information you had to talk to a sales rep well that information people just want and they want the information to be relevant they want it to be informed they want to be customized highly personalized like that's the role that automation and, and and artificial intelligence play is being able to predict based on your behavior based on you know, your environment based on what you've told that bot or that even a, that human that inserted the data into the model, right? Like it's being able to understand what that person needs, what point they're at within the buying process and give them relevant uh, uh, interaction, relevant content to educate that buyer. At some point, people, and this is price point dependent, right? Like if I'm buying a $19 a month solution, I really care less about talking to someone. But if I'm buying a $1.9 solution, I care a lot about talking to, the people who are going to be involved. And I think where the human aspect comes in is, is truly that buying committee threading, meaning CEOs are involved in sales processes these days, DPs of customer success, as well as the sales individual, as well as the enablement uh, team, as well as maybe a project manager. Like we're, we're just bringing more and more human connection into the B2B sales cycle. And, and I think that, that, again, if I'm able to bring in uh, a two executives, I'm able to bring them together. And they're literally piggybacking off of the conversations that have taken place before them because they've been informed, they're following a a playbook and a process. That's highly effective versus jumping in and like, okay, what'd you talk about with Sally? That's a really ineffective human element to the buying process. And I think that's where like quality is the the big lever to determining if humans are involved or not, right? Like a certain element uh, of warmth and of just empathy is never going to be able to be accomplished via a bot. Uh, we want that human connection, but we want that human connection to be highly relevant. So uh, again, I think humans have a, a huge role to play within trust-building, modern-day sales, modern-day marketing, but it's the role that the buyer needs, not the role we want them to need. You know, we, we can't dictate, oh, you're going to talk to someone at this point. They have to let us know they're ready to talk.
13: Interesting. So I'm curious, as you think about this space, like beyond AI, right? 2019, the sales market is kind of overwhelming. The marketing market is overwhelming. There was this really great quote in the book. There's a I don't know if you've seen the book, "The Challenger Customer." Yes. But uh, yeah, there was this point that they made in there that says, you know, we think so much about how hard it is to sell our product, Mm -hmm. um, and yet we forget how hard it is to buy. Right. This environment, and that always that sticks with me. So it's it is overwhelming as a buyer to figure out. From a tool perspective like where do i need to focus first as you look into 2019 what do you think is going to happen to the state of the technology market for sales and marketing and what advice would you have for somebody who is overwhelmed and doesn't know where to start
14: yeah i think that same book states something like your buying process has to be simpler to progress through than it is to use your actual yeah product, right <laughs> And so there's nuances to that as well, but I think generally that's true. Like we have to make it easy for someone to engage with us. We have to, you know, create a buying path that they understand and that they see value in, and so on. So definitely, I subscribe to that concept. What's next for the marketing and sales, certainly Martech and and sales technology market? I think M and A is the overwhelming trend there. That, and we're already seeing a lot of progression down that path, right? Like Marketo's obviously been acquired. You're, you're seeing large providers like Microsoft and Salesforce and Adobe just roll up these super comprehensive stacks, right? And I think that that also is in response to the buyer's need for simplicity. They want to understand that they're working with something where they don't go through that long procurement process and they sell their boss and the CFO signs off on it. And then the next thing they find out is well, I I need to buy four other solutions to do functions that I thought this solution actually did. I think the Marketo Visible uh, acquisition really speaks to that. I I don't know how many times I've been on the phone with an executive who's saying, you know, I bought Marketo six months ago, and how do I get my attribution reporting? And, and you know, the the previous solution was super clunky, and and even the the fact that that wasn't front and center in that solution was a monster gap. And so that acquisition made a ton of sense because the buyer was demanding that, you know, Attribution is just so core to marketing. How does a marketing automation platform not bear that, that feature? And so I I think M&A is, is definitely solving for that. I think you're also seeing just a, quite frank, a lot of uh, these smaller organizations that offered tools that were rigidy and didn't provide a lot of value. They're just, you know, they're going out of business. And, And again, that's, that's a market correction. So in one way or another, MarkTech Solutions will get easy to buy. Whether whether we see those those folks just get taken off the table, whether they get rolled up into a larger organization, value has to be the centerpiece of that process. And I, th- I think we're starting to see a, a lot of movement uh, towards that value epicenter.
13: I would agree. As we kind of wrap up, let's go back to where we started, which was these couple of kind of key basics like if i think about what you went through right having having a, a strong strategy then really putting a plan around that strategy getting the talent in place to execute on that strategy these are sort of fundamental basics that yeah. over time we often forget to we we sort of overcomplicate things if i go back to basics and i go back and i just sort of refocus on on these things i'm heading into 2019 Perfect time, right, to start to reevaluate my strategy, reevaluate re-evalu- my growth plan. Where do I get started?
14: The same advice as I mentioned earlier, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but truly everything does start with the buyer. So, how has my buyer changed? Like we're we're living in a a world of of mass change, and and just our iterative cycles are getting shorter and shorter, and technology is coming on board, and and like we said before, like they're getting acquired, they're pivoting their feature set, and so on, so. The buyer inherently changes with all of these processes. Their ex- the point in which they want to talk to an organization changes, how they build trust changes. Likewise, the business that the selling organization changes, right? Like their solution evolves. So we need to constantly revisit who our buyer is. How are they seeing value from our solution? What are our most successful customers doing? How are they utilizing, you know, if the platform, if it's the service, how are they talking to us? What problems are we solving? How can we cross pollinate and just precipitate that same success into our next buyer or into other customers that we've already brought through the customer gate and, and we need to further enable to be really being that advocate for us? So starting off each year with a revisit from a target. Uh, market research perspective and a buyer persona perspective is absolutely my number one uh, piece of advice. And again, that will inform the rest of your process. We're, we're actually going through this right now as within our own organization. And that means going out, no plug intended, but we use DiscoverOrg. So that's one of our, our first passes there is to to pull updated data, to get those firmographic windows, to get the the buying committee uh revalidated and fleshed out within our database. And then we'll apply different layers of insights there. You know, what are these, what's our target buyer talking about on social? What channels are they participating in? What's their general sentiment? Again, looking at our most successful customers and and taking those insights and determining how we can make that customer we just onboarded yesterday as successful and, and even more successful than than those uh, our ideal customers today. So I think it all starts with again, reevaluating who are we selling to? What do they need? How are we meeting those needs? Scaling that into the rest of those fundamentals that you mentioned. Like how does that impact our messaging, our content, our channels? How do we need to adjust our process? Is our sales process smooth? Do we have a really good threaded process between marketing and sales? And so, I mean, that, that, that is the state of marketing, in my opinion, is a general return to fundamentals. We've seen all the shiny objects come about. There is no shortcut. You know, if you do find one, it's gonna be extremely short lived. So revisiting those fundamentals and getting back to basics is really where you're seeing the the experts separated from the the hack. The the growth hacker, I think, largely ninety percent of them are quite frankly hacks. I don't need someone to run my ad campaign and optimize it. I need someone to understand my buyer and understand that ads are part of that communication channel and And just take a different mental approach to the overall buying and and marketing process. So return to basics and and always start with the buyer.
13: Such good reminders. So if you're listening out there, whether you're a startup, whether you're a big company, whether you're trying to figure out how to break through, the competitors, your competitors that are winning out there are the ones who really know their buyer and have figured out how to connect with that buyer. Well, Justin, the time has really flown by. Thank you for taking some time today to connect with me. How can somebody reach you if they want to learn more about LeadMD or organic farming?
14: Totally. Yeah. So LeadMD.com, actually for both uh, both subject matters, you can always check out my profile uh, on the website there. I'm super active on LinkedIn uh, and also Twitter. On Twitter, I'm at JGrayMatter. Um, so yeah, hit me up. I'd love to chat regardless of... Uh, of what you're looking to take away from the conversation we'll definitely get into to marketing maybe entrepreneurship and if you're lucky farming
13: <sighs> thank you so much justin paul back over to you
2: you've
1: been listening to another episode of growth outbound b2b a brand new show right here on the funnel radio network for at work listeners like you
0: Thank you for tuning in for the Funnel Radio Channel for November 15th, 2018.